Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and welcome to a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we have interviews with people within the music industry, and we give them their flowers while they're here so that they can smell them and have them be celebrated. Right now, with me all the way from Australia, I have my man, KG, from the UK pop R&B group, m and and he rarely gives interviews, so you guys definitely be appreciative of him taking the time out of his schedule. I mean, he is literally with me online right now in Australia. KG, how you doing? Thank you for taking the time out to be on Beyond Album Cover, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jarrell. Hey, Jarrell. Really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's an honor. It's an honor. Oh, man, that pleasure is all mine because like we were talking about before we started the podcast was I was watching a upload of an old episode of Top of the Pops and they had you guys performing Happy by Surface and I just emailed out on a whim and said, yo, these guys are dope and I want to know everything about you guys. So I really appreciate you taking time. Sure. No, no, thank you. I, I you know, it's, 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 as I said, it's an honor. It's, um, I'm really, really happy to, to, to expand on, 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 on our story and, and, and share, 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 share our story with everybody, all your, all your listeners. All right. Now let's go ahead and get right into it. So growing up in the UK, did you always have a love of singing or was it something that maybe somebody said, Hey, you got the voice for it. You should do this or something that you love. You know, I came from a very musical family. Um, came from a family of um, of a lot, a bunch of creatives, all artists and musicians and singers. So from a very, very young age, I was always exposed to it. My older brother um, is an artist called Glenn Goldsmith. He did a, a, quite a few things during the um, during the eighties and nineties. He worked with MC Hammer and did release, had some big releases on RCA Records. He was quite a, a known soul artist across Europe. So from a young age, I had you know I had those kind of people in my family. I was the backing singer for him from the age of five years old you know um I was talking to my my daughter the other day because she's she's a she's a budding singer herself and I was telling her that you know I was exposed to bands like from an early age like um Shalimar and and lots of tenors people who I tended to I I, I kind of emulated them as I went onwards but people tenors like um Shalimar Michael Jackson you know um um, um Curtis Hairston some really great soul powerhouses so it was always a thing for us music's always been part of my um Part of my it's always it's always been there i've always picked up things up through that that kind of osmosis as well from a young age i was learning to produce write exposed to electronic music i, I it, was, it was it was um you know like you have people who are who are readers for me i, I gobbled up music i was all about it you know it was, it was it was just part of me right you mentioned your brother glenn goldsmith did he have the song dreaming yes he did yes he did he did he had the song dreaming when i was a when i was when i was a high schooler he was um it was, it was quite a known star, very, 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 very successful. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, he did, he did very, very well. He's still out there, he's still very active at the moment. I think he had a UK soul number one in the last two, three years as well. He's doing really well for himself. Dope, dope, dope. Now, how much did you have to end up shelling out in pounds in order to get those US imports of albums? <laughs> yeah, look, it, yeah, it, it was, it was at the time, I think we're talking about CDs and stuff like that, aren't we, during the, are we talking about the 90s or talking about during the 80s? 80s, <laughs> um, 80s, 90s. I want to know how much of your fish and chips money did you spend at the record <laughs> store? Look, to be honest with you, from a young age, I actually inherited a lot of music from my older brother. So my mum, my mum, my mum was really big on a lot of old jazz music, a lot of like, um, uh, you know, late 60s, 60s soul and funk. 
um, some classical even. So we, we inherited quite a lot of music from, from my parents. Then my brother, being a bit older than me, he kind of caught wind of like the early kind of like soul and funk bands that were kind of happening around the UK. Also some of the, you know, the, the, the US bands that were making a bit of noise in the UK at the time. He was into early dance and disco and that kind of stuff. So he was bringing that music home. So I got to listen to that stuff for free. You know, I got to listen to that stuff for free. Now, when I hit the age probably about, you know, 12, 13, and I had a bit of money to buy myself, I, I was big on a lot of like the early kind of like, um, you know, hip hop. And also where it was fused with R&B. So the four CMDs, new edition, that kind of stuff. And that's when my, my pocket money started to go out the door. Okay? Um, in terms of how much it, it, um, it cost, I mean, look, um, imports, standard CD um, to buy in the UK was probably about £15 at the time. I would probably spend double that on a US import, maybe, maybe even higher if I really wanted something. When I got to an early, a later age, I, was, I also got into sample-based production. So I was selling out up to £100 on like, you know, CDs that I could, you know, um, vinyl that I could take home and sample, you know. So now it, it was guys, if I wanted it, I'd just have it, you know. But it was expensive, very expensive. I, I bet that it cost a pretty penny. Or your other option was, if you knew somebody in the States, call them up and say, hey, I need this record. Can you send it over? <laughs> That's the one. That's the one. Well, fortunately, later on, as I started to 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 move in certain circles, I could get things for free. Even so, I knew a lot of a lot of DJs coming up in in the UK at the time, hip hop and R&B DJs. So I'd even get things on preview. I'd get white labels for free as well. I was quite savvy with that. I had my connects as well, so I was good with that. Yeah, it always helps to have a connect or the plug to give you that inside scoop. Now, I was just That's recently, yeah, I was just recently looking at a documentary about the history of urban music on commercial radio in the UK. And what I found interesting was that it wasn't until 90 when Kiss FM got on the air that R&B music was pretty much considered underground and you had pirate radio stations where your guys' version of what would be the FCC here in America would crack down on these stations and they'll come from anywhere all over the UK, but that would be the main place where you would go to hear R&B, yep. early rap, reggae i mean you guys heard loose ends and some of the acts that ended up breaking over here in america way before right. they made it stateside so tell me how that was That's like right. getting r&b before it became commercial in the uk well i'll tell you what it was it was actually an amazing time for music like so you know from the age of 10 years old i'm going to school and other kids from all backgrounds i'm talking about young children who were like um um, um, they were like children of like first generation Indian immigrants or Pakistani immigrants, you know, white children from East London whose families had been there for like, you know, for, for centuries. These kids from age of 10 were singing a lot of like US, US and even UK underground R&B at school, the same way that people would sing along to hip hop music now. It was huge. And because we had to go and find it and, and sit there with like play and record on our, on our tape decks, we really valued the music. So the underground thing actually put a lot of equity into 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 R and B and and R and B music, particularly the the U S electronic stuff and the underground stuff that was happening in London, it put a premium on it, and so it was a it was a huge thing. It, you know, it isn't like it's today where people make a song in their bedroom the night before and they release it the next day and it's accessible because you couldn't have it. You really needed to, you know, you really went after it. It was a really great time and a lot of great artists broke, you know, off the back of it. I do recall a lot of the underground um, stations as well. Like you know, these are the ones that we all tuned into. Um, but even even during the early breakdancing days from things like electronic music, um, what we used to go, we used to download the electro ones, electro twos. I think I think you guys would have been playing um, a lot of like the block party type hip hop stuff with like Cool Herc and whatnot. We would get those and we would release them in the U in the UK 
as Electro 1, Electro 2, Electro 3, Electro 4. So you'd have people like Africa, Bambata, Force MDs, you know, those kind of groups, um, 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 a full force. We'd be able to pick up those stuff. We, 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 we caught wind of it through the underground stations. So it was it was a it was a huge time. It was it was it was it was it was it was brilliant. I actually really missed those days, and um, I, I think we, we you know it it, it, um, it def definitely solidified um, a music in that a memory in that way, and also it also created some huge careers for artists later on when when money started getting pumped into them and everyone was kind of a bit more validated. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, it definitely did. And during that time in the late seventies, early eighties. They were talking about in the documentary how in the main entertainment district in London, there wasn't really a lot of nightclubs that were catering to urban music and the urban use of the UK, where you had your soul nights, which was pretty much where Northern Soul would be played, yep. but it was white ran, white owned. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I forgot the guy's name had this club called Crackers. And it was really okay. the first club where urban music was played and the youths were allowed to come in and not be hassled and it brought to mind to me i just saw the movie about six months to a year ago babylon and for uh -huh. me as an american to see that there was that much racism amongst the blacks in the uk it made me yeah. feel like it's no different than what was going on over here in america no it's it's not, it's, it's not too dissimilar it's not too dissimilar it, it, it's um the, the racial tensions were always there. I think the difference between England and America, to be honest with you, is that, and it's something I've also experienced as being in Australia. That's Australia is probably a little bit more like America in, in, the, in the way in the way people move. In the UK, the fortunate thing is that we kind of are forced to live on top of each other. So, so how can I put it? Um, um, everyone's exposed to each other. I think the biggest, the worst thing about racism is the fact that people can tend to be quite quite ignorant about each other. And when you're ignorant, you kind of lose that. You lose sight of that humanity. You can't see yourself in others. With a lot of us growing up in the UK, we, 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 um, if someone really didn't like you, they really didn't like you. And they, they, you know, they had a valid reason for not liking you. Um, but they, it wasn't because of ignorance. You, know? um, you generally kind of got on. But again, yeah, the, 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 the tensions did kind of prevail as well. Obviously, the tensions always prevail because we always, we always tend to like people that look like ourselves. You know? um, so it's a, little, it's a little bit like America, but it's a little bit slightly more nuanced and complex. You know, right? Because um, yeah. um, at the same time, a lot of black artists from the U.S. were seen as superstars in the U.K., even bigger, even bigger superstars than a lot of like the European counterparts. You know, so it's in a way, it's it's a, yeah, it's a little bit kind of nuanced. Right. Whereas over here in the states, you're very hyper segregated. Because if you go to a major city right. like your L.A., your Chicago, your New York, blacks on this side of town, whites on this side of town, Jewish right. here, uh, whatever Im immigrant group you're in that section that's right. you don't really mix among each other that's right that's right and i see that as a bit of a luxury to be honest with you like even in, even else even in sydney it's like that you in australia you've got areas where there's purely caucasian people and there's purely an italian community like an arabic community it's like that here and i kind of look at it and i think you know that's a luxury for us we, we were having to live on top of each other you know and it, and it was actually a beautiful thing during the 80s it, it's it, it 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 made things less tense than they than they could have been you know right being exposed Right. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I love about all of you guys from the UK and other countries too, is that how much you guys love our music over here and just add your own cultural spin to it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Definitely. Definitely. We, we, um, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a brilliant thing. I, 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 I actually notice it even, particularly even now, some, my kids are playing some hip hop and, and everything. I'm seeing a lot of stuff coming out of 
uh, places like um, even Sydney, like the, the, the hip hop outfits, or even the, even like the, um, the, 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 the garage scene in the UK and the, and the drill rappers. I, I really love, I, I, I like to see that spin. And it happens a lot in places like Paris as well. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Definitely, definitely. I hear mm -hmm. that. Yeah, so tell me, did you start singing solo artist-wise or in any other groups prior to the formation of m &A? Before m and I was a solo artist. So, so um, when I was very, very young, I started producing and writing my own music, my own material. Um, I, um, I had a, a New Jack Swing group, um, a, a young New Jack Swing group. We wanted to be, we wanted to be like Basic Black and, and, and Troop and whatnot. And we would, um, I, would, I would take my, uh, my, my pocket money and I'd head up to studios in London from a very young age and produce my own New Jack Swing music and try, and try to get on. Um, and um, at the same time, um, one of the guys in my group who ended up being one of the other guys, a co-founder of m and G-Man, um, Gary, he, um, he was a solo artist, a budding solo artist at the same time. So we were kind of orbiting each other. We'd bump into each other just in the local neighborhood. He always, he always kind of looked out for me. He was like a big brother to me. He was a very good friend of my older, one of my older siblings. And, um, and we connected and we found out we had a lot of similarities in terms of our, our, um, our, um, our, um, our influences and we started collaborating and that's how Eminix kind of started to spawn so we were initially a group called the juice when we when we linked up called the juice and we made a little bit of noise around london um in terms of being like one of those up and coming new jack swing groups we were there alongside groups like there was another group called um at the time called rhythm and bass roses um, roses that's right that's right and uh, wayne hector and ali ali Tennant. And they were the other kind of upcoming New Jack Swing group at the time, but we, it was relatively quite, there were not many young energetic groups that had that kind of, um, that kind of angle. And yeah, we, we were the two that were making a bit of noise. We, 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 we were in, we were, we were relatively, we were, we were covered now and again in magazines like Blues and Soul at the time. We even had like an underground single that created a bit of a buzz and we were interviewed on places like Kiss FM, made a little bit of noise in the States with, with, that, with some of our music. We have a song called Do the Nasty, which was released on an independent. And um, I think kind of showcase what we were kind of about. And that's how, that's how Emanate started to kind of percolate. That's how the idea behind Emanate started to percolate. It's like realizing that you know, we could actually do something with this, you know? The idea initially was to just, um, just to, you know, get our foot in the door. But when it started to become something and people started to go, basically, you guys look the part. And the way you guys perform, you guys really have something. You've got an energy and you've got a dynamism about you. Also, you, you, the way you sound, it's just really, really quite unique. You guys should start redeveloping really your act. And I think that really spawned, that spawned Emanate. Um, but yeah, but for, for me personally, I was, I was the guy. My influences were always like the, um, when I was coming up, I was watching the guys like the, the, you know, the, the, the Ralph Tresmans, the Michael Jacksons, the, the Stevie Wonders. I wanted to be a superstar. <laughs> like, I literally wanted to be a superstar. And when I met G-Man, he was the same kind of thing. He was that dude, he was watching the, um, he had this whole little Prince vibe, his whole little Casey. He was, he was, he was really big on Jodeci and, and acts like that and he wanted to be out there and we had this idea that we wanted to not just be like a group like boys to men and do what group we wanted to actually go out and take over the world and that was that was our that was our vision and that was that was that was what spawned all of that right and it makes me think if y'all were shelling out that much in pounds and quints for u.s imports imagine how much vhs copies of soul train went on the black market over there of course, of course, of course. Uh, I think, I think um, I, I, there was you know, obviously with the black market, you also had a lot of people doing a lot of pirating as well. So we, we got to see those things anyway. You know, you always, you always knew a guy at the barbershop who had, a, had it on a VHS recording. Right. And <laughs> where, had a guy who could do that. Mm -hmm. And where did Cool T and Details come to the picture? 
so Cool T was a, a, a local singer that we knew. Um, so when me and G were singing, we, we obviously we had our idea for, 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 for the juice we were called initially. And um, Cool T was a, a singer. He used to do, do a lot of talent competitions in East London and do backing vocalists and singing choirs and whatnot. And we knew him. We kind of like within the same circles. Um, Details was also a, um, uh, Details was a, a performer. He was an entertainer. He was a dancer, an actor, a rapper. We always moved in the same circles, but we never wanted him in our group initially. We were, we were totally, we, we, had, we had the mindset that we, we, we wanted to really heavily curate our group, but sometimes the answers are right under your nose, you know? Sometimes we go looking a little bit too farther afield when the answers are already there. And then one day we kind of linked up and we, we, we did a few rehearsals. We'd sing, we'd sing acapella and doo-wop. And that's when it, you know, we started realizing we had a little bit of a, a chemistry and a synergy. And that's how the whole thing came about. So we were all people who kind of knew each other, but when we put it together, it, you know, it became something quite, quite magical. Right. So was Emanate always a four piece or did you ever have a thought of expanding it to make it a five piece? Well, we were actually, we were actually initially a two piece. And then we, 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 we actually, um, before we actually um, decided to pull details and call to you in the group, we actually were, were talking to um, our manager about working with a guy called, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, an artist, a writer in the States called um, 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 Ivan Matthias. He wrote a lot of stuff. I think he wrote for um, Invoke. He wrote Don't Let Go for Invoke. Amazing, amazing um, soul singer. You know, he's of the ilk of like a, a Will Downing or a, or, or a Luther Vandross. He's, got, he's that kind of style. Um, Hispanic guy and it was going to be a three-piece it was just going to be us three together and um and um and um obviously uh, due to contracts and stuff it kind of wasn't wasn't the perfect scenario um and we decided rather than auditioning and looking for other field obviously you know pulling the guys we already knew and 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 create and create something that was kind of slightly more organic and natural rather than manufactured and that's how it kind of that's how it became the four piece it almost kind of became a four piece overnight and, uh, and it worked harmony-wise, definitely. It worked in terms of us being able to walk in a room and, and, and do what we had to do. Right. So looking back at that time, did you guys go to a regular high school or did you go to what would be like a performing arts high school in the UK? Well, we all went to different schools. We all went to different schools scattered across, across London. So we, we, all, we, all, we, we didn't grow up in that way together. The only one I grew up with was actually GMAT. So, so he was like I said, he was, he was, he was an older, he's old, old, he like an older brother to me. Um, um, you know, he left school a little bit earlier than me. We were all kind of sep separate. And I think in a way it was a good thing because, um, um, how can I put it? It, 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 it was, um, when people see Emanate, they see a group that we, we always thought of ourselves as being a bit of a super group. We saw ourselves as being four solo artists that kind of like linked up together. We saw ourselves as a bit of a, uh, yeah, a an interesting super group that could also had the opportunity to have, um, 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 offshoots to be able to go solo later on a bit like a, almost like a new edition type idea and so yeah just just growing up separately going to different high schools and that allowed us to be individuals which is really good but when we came together we were more than we were as as an as, as you know as, as a singular right so when you guys got signed to the uk division of columbia records was it the same grind whereas you showcase for different labels and then they pick whether or not they want to sign you or how'd you guys get your deal well, um, that was that was a bit of a long story. We 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 um, the way we the way we got our deal was it was off the back of me and G Man releasing the the uh, the initial single as the juice. We had made a little bit of noise. We made a few connections with with different music managers. Um, a music manager who came came along to see us. So actually, an a, a top A and R guy. He was a senior A and R guy in the UK. A guy called Mick Clark. 
he was seen as as being like um they call him the godfather of uk soul i i, I kind of think that's debatable <laughs> but um he was the guy who signed loose ends he signed soul to soul he found a, you know a few heavyweight uk uk artists he came along to a studio with swash rehearsing and um and believed that you know we, we could be something he saw the potential and he signed us to our our, our, our major deal um with 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 um with, with Sony with Sony Columbia, um the whole idea behind that as well was to develop us over a, over a longer period of time for a release and so we could we could become significant. And and what was significant about it at the time was, as you picked up as well, there was a lot of um, it was a huge thing in the UK because there wasn't a lot of support for homegrown black artists, let alone black artists um, in general in terms of the marketing budgets. But with ourselves, I mean, we, we got signed to quite a significant deal for what we were. The idea was to develop us and release a, a really kind of solid album and build us over, over a career. Um, unfortunately, at the time, Mick Clark, he, he uh, I think uh, as a result of maybe partying a little bit too much, he had to kind of sit out. After signing us, we, we kind of missed out on having a person within Sony for probably like a period of six months to almost a year. So we were languishing on the label for about a year. After he got better, we kind of rushed together within the space of about three months. We, re we recorded the M&A album, the first M&A album, and pushed it out. It wasn't the ideal scenario for us. So we, 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 to be honest with you, I'm giving you a bit, of, a bit of insight. We felt the album was a little bit rushed for what it was just because we had that so, such a long time of sitting on the sidelines. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it got out. Now, once we released the album, once we, once we scheduled a release date for the album, the idea was to really um, win hearts and minds. So we won this really exhaustive campaign to promote the first big black UK homegrown group in the UK. Um, for Sony itself, um, it would have been, it was, we were the first group for probably the last three, but there were first groups for 10 years to have a homegrown number one, first R&B group, homegrown R&B group to have a, a top 10 single in the UK for, for the label. So, so the idea that was, that was actually the focus we went to, to be the biggest thing ever. And so it was a, it was a huge, a huge campaign we had to get, we had to also become a priority within Sony to be able to do it. So it was, it was a massive ordeal we, we, we undertook. We did it in, in, in partnership with a, with a really motivated manager we had at the time, a young hip hop manager called Ralph Daly, who was brilliant. And we, we became really regimented and we went around the UK and we, we worked really hard. Like we, we were performing three venues a day, school tours, we did it all, you know, it was, it was massive, exhausting. Right. So what was the reaction like before you guys exploded during those tours? Because like you stated at that time, it really wasn't a big reception for homegrown UK R&B acts, especially what you guys were doing, because the first album came out in 1995. And right. this little band that um, a guy by the name of Robbie Williams, Gary Barlow was in called Take That had split. So it was yeah. the time was right for a young fresh group coming off of the take that phenomenon well that's right well that's the funny thing about it is that you know when we um when when the label first saw us the first thing they said they said wow they said if we put you want to take that tour you will steal all their fans because the uk's never seen anything like you before and um and um it was, it was i think it was the tail end of take that take that was probably like i think it was two years before they split but they'd been huge for years they came off the back of nukas on the block in the uk right and um I, yeah, sorry. You were yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I interviewed Danny Wood and I asked him what he thought about Take That, and he was like, "They were good, and it just showed how much a phenomenon they were." To well, Nigel Martin Smith said, "Hey, I want to do a UK version of that," and that led to Take That, and then that led to Louis Walsh creating Boyzone. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, 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 yeah. Take That definitely. I, I, I lived through the whole thing. I had to. I had to endure. 
um, the girls I liked at school being in love with the guys who lived in the block for years. So I, <laughs> I, I lived it from so many different perspectives. But then, yeah, I remember when Take That launched off the back of them. And Take That were absolutely, they, they obliterated the place. They had it all going on. And they totally met their marketplace. They were doing that real kind of early popular dance pop for, 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 for audience that could resonate with them. But what we thought was missing in terms of ourselves, there was also, like we said, the underground culture of, 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 of 90s R&B and hip hop. There was, a, there was a, an audience that wasn't being tapped into and they weren't being met. And the music that we were listening to, me and my friends of all backgrounds, white, black, Indian, you know, Arabic, we were all listening to like that, that, that um, urban New Jack swing that, you know, listen to the production of Marley Marl and LL Cool J. And we were listening to Jodeci and we were listening to High Five and all these groups. And they've served that teen, teen audience, but take that weren't meeting that marketplace. So we also were a band that could, could come in and we wouldn't necessarily have to cross over. We could just, we could just use our platform to reach like a, a massive audience that was developing and buzzing. Right. So, so, so we, weren't in, we weren't completely in direct competition with them and we, we wouldn't want to do that anyway. We, we, we actually thought take that was perfect for what they were doing. But the idea for us is that using the same platform, yeah, we could basically, um, uh, well, I think the terminology that the label manager used was he said, look, if we put you guys out, you'll, you'll have to stop the world to get off. You know, it will be, be absolutely huge. Right. So when you guys got signed to Columbia, did you guys also have access to work with people within the U.S. division? And did you go to the label and say, hey, we want to not only be big in the U.K., but we also want to try to break in the U.S. market simultaneously? Yes, definitely, definitely. So one of the things that Sony spotted about us when they were signing us, they said, look, you guys don't really just look like a UK homegrown group. You look like an international group. You look like a group that could take over the world. You look like you could be absolutely huge. Because we found, just, just tracking back a little bit to the, that comment I made earlier on about us growing up in different parts of London and going to different high schools. There was something that was, there was a subculture that was happening in the UK in terms of things like R&B. And you probably see it a little bit in the States yourself. You see there's some groups that can be a little bit parochial and in, inward looking. You know, you might have a group that might come from a certain, a certain town or a suburb and they tend to just kind of like, they move in certain circles, they move in certain networks, kind of very clicky. And they don't tend to really look out, they don't really tend to look like a group that can really break out of that little community. You know, like being the best, the best group in New Jersey or the best group in, you know what I mean, in, mm. in, 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 in Brooklyn. And they tend to move in those circles and then they tend to measure themselves against who else is there. With us, we were always, because we were so different. I mean, our, our, our heroes weren't, weren't, um, weren't Tony from down the street. Our heroes were like Michael Jackson. Our heroes were like Prince. Our heroes were like, you know, um, 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 Glenn Jones. You know, the people that we grew up listening to in isolation. So when we came out, we were ready to take on. You know, we, 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 were looking, we were looking to the greats. And we were ready to take on like this massive task of things on the that translated that transcended borders and transcended culture. You know, we wanted to be something a lot huger. You know, so 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 um um so um sorry, just going back to your question, you mentioned about 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 the states, about stateside. Um, so Sony was always looking further afield with us anyway. So so when we went to when we when we were um, on the verge of releasing, we we got a, a, U, a U.S. manager. Our U.S. manager was a guy by the name of Pete Thomas. He is the uh, guy, you'll see Pete Thomas on Real Housewives of Atlanta of late, I think he was recently on, but he was a huge, um, um, uh, I'd say he was a bit of a mover and a shaker in, 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 in the States. He, he started a conference called the How Can I Be Down Conference, and he would bring together a lot of big wigs, like back in the day, from people like you know, Russell Simmons to Shook Knight to, to, to Puff Daddy. He, he was just a, a go-to. And the idea of this conference was to, was to, was to um, um, uh, uh, 
provide secrets to, to people who are up and comers and also create some kind of cohesion and networking amongst a lot of like uh, black players within the, within the urban, I hate using the, the term urban, within the urban music scene. Um, so when we signed to him, um, he, um, he made a lot of connects for us and that's where a lot of the, the remixes we did came from. At the time it, it coincided with Puff Daddy um, leaving um, Uptown Records um, with Andre Harrell. It was rumored that obviously he, he got fired or whatever and he went and set up back Bad Boy Records. And he was looking to, 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 to have a jump off, a jump off point. And that's when Pete Thomas approached him about remi remixing I Thought Something For You for m and I think he did it for about, I think he did it for the equivalent of about $2,000, $2, you know, because he just wanted to have some, something there. And so that became one of the first things that Puff Daddy did for Bad Boy. Which is and an interesting, interesting story. And that is crazy how that record was one of Diddy's first remixes and then for you guys to get I Got a Little Something For You featured on the Bad Boy soundtrack with Martin and Will Smith at their peaks. That was just huge. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was huge. That was huge for us. And you know the funny thing about it, even looking back today, I think, you know, sometimes, some, some, you, know, sometimes you find that the marketplace isn't ready for something. Like it was, it, it, things, things that we were doing back then uh, more like things that people do now. Do you know what I mean? And I think I don't think the market was ready for it. I think if it happened now, there'd be a little bit more noise about it. But at the time, the things that we were doing were so huge and so ambitious that um, I think it kind of I think people kind of missed it a little bit, you know. But yeah, for us it was massive. So when we when we um, released, I've got um, there was a lot of you know we had some really good people on our team, you know, working with Pete Thomas and Ralph Bailey and a few people we had in the UK label in the States. We also got signed to the work group in America and the work group was responsible for the soundtrack to Bad Boy Records, sorry, sorry for the Bad Boy movie. So they had us, they had, um, they had um, Puff Johnson, they had um, Diana King, and they also had, um, um, who is the really amazing singer? He's a really amazing singer. He sang Love Is On The Way for, um, Will, um, um, I can't remember, it was the, um, uh, there was a movie with Bette Midler and, and, and Diane Keaton, I can't remember. He's also quite a flamboyant guy. He goes to all the, all the, um, all the awards now. He dresses up in like uh, amazing like Phoenix dress ups. He's a musical singer. I can't remember the guy's name. Amazing singer. Um, I'll, it'll come to me later on. Yeah, they had artists like that on their label that were looking to break. And so a lot of us featured on, on, the Bad Boys, on the Bad Boys soundtrack as a result. And it was an excellent vehicle for us. And it put us in really good company. And we were on there. We went from being a group that was really trying to take over the UK and Europe to being a group that was in really good company with people like Warren G, Tupac, Notorious B.I.G., The Brat, you know, Outcasts. It was really good company for us. And that was really, we saw ourselves in that space, you know, we saw ourselves in that space. And even when we went to America, we were, we were received in that way, you know? Yeah. Um, so so it, was, it, was a, it, was a really, it was a really good time. Everything was really, really positive. Yeah, because looking up. Yeah, because looking at your guys' look, it was like you guys definitely studied all of the male R&B groups at the time over here in America, especially Jodeci with the way that you guys look with the way, with the dress and then with the yeah. underwear that was showing m and I mean, it just <laughs> screamed the bad boy look. Yeah, we, we, we lived it. Like we really did, we really did live it. Like if I, you know, to, to, to just reiterate slightly, you know, sometimes like you can watch something from afar and you want to copy something for us. We were living it in real time, you know? So we were just we were immersed in it, and, and and the way I saw that kind of culture myself personally, for me that transcended any particular place. It was just a sound. It was a different plane of existence, you know. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we were all about it. I wasn't looking at the guy down the road from me. I was looking at the people. I was looking at the greats, you know. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, one day we would have been featuring. We would have been recorded with Michael Jackson. 
that's the way we viewed it. You know, these music is a different language to us. So it, 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 to a certain extent, yeah, it was paying a lot of homage and respect to people, but we really lived it and loved it, you know? It was, right. it, was, it, was, it was our world. And, it was, mm-hmm. and, that, and that, I think that kind of focus is, was, was a focus that a lot of our counterparts didn't have in the UK, and it was part of our success, you know, that we were really authentic about it. Mm-hmm. And the debut album to the next level went top 20 UK pop, top five UK R&B. It went silver. And for those of us that's not familiar with the BPI's ranking of albums, silver is the third rung between gold and platinum. So if an album sells right. silver in the UK, that means it sold, I believe, 60,000 units. If it goes yep. platinum, it sells, I want to say, maybe 300,000. And if it goes that's gold, right. it sells, sells 100,000 units. So that would be the equivalent of the RAA over here in America. Now, that's right. the big thing that you guys accomplished with that song it beat out Seal as number one best-selling single in the UK for that year. Kiss from Rose was a huge single, and you guys topped him, but that song was kept out the number one spot on the pop charts by a little ditty by Miss Celine Dion. <laughs> yes, yes. There's, 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 yeah, there's an interesting story behind that as well. It's, it's, um, it's funny, um, um, even today, like I talked to my wife about, my, wife, my wife's a massive fan of Celine Dion. She, 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 loves, she loves all these singers. She loves the Whitney Houstons and, and whatnot. And um, she knew of times when Celine Dion was like, you know, I'd view Celine Dion as a peer. Like at the time she was really making waves in the UK. She was on the, she, was, she had the same people working with her team as we did. We'd sit rehearsing together and everything. And it was that kind of, it, was, it, it wasn't competition, but we moved in those kind of circles. And we were kind of like a bit like when, when, when we, Celine Dion had this huge record during that time when Emanates, I've, I've, I've got something for you, was out. Huge number, a huge number one singer was there for, for, for kind of forever. And um, she was um, a priority with the label at the time. So they'd already, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd achieved their target of having the number one in the UK. We were number two. And in terms of breaking a new black group, there would have been nothing better than to pull her off the number one spot and put us on. So we, you know, Sony, we, we felt Sony had the luxury of being able to say, look, Celine, we're going to pull your single off and we're going to put Emanate into number one. You know, you know, we thought it would have been a nice touch, but obviously, you know, they didn't. I think she, 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 she remained the priority with the label and, and we were kind of kept on. I, I understand how that kind of moves, but, but yeah, that would have been a nice touch because we had that number one. It was, would have kind of solidified us. We would have kind of arrived. It would be like probably today's equivalent of winning like The Voice or something. You know? Right. It would have been really good for us career-wise. Right. Really so, so what was it like when you guys got the call to be on Top of the Pops, which is a British institution on the BBC it for is. decades. Generations grew up on Top of the Pops. Yes, it's it no is. longer on the air in its weekly form, but it's still on the air as its Christmas special. And can you explain to me, as a music head from the U.S., how come the Christmas number one is such a huge deal in the U.K.? Okay, okay. Uh, the Christmas number one is a, is a huge, I'll start with that first. Christmas number one is a huge deal in the UK because, you know, it's a time when everything stops. You know, everything stops. The whole music industry grinds down. If you get the Christmas number one, you're kind of like uh, solidified in people's hearts and minds, not just for that Christmas, but kind of forever. You know, it's, 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 it's a bit of an occasion in the UK. And because everything shuts down, there are no more releases. You're hearing that on rotation for like the next two, three months, you know? It kind of puts you in a in a in a place, you know. It's 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 something people vie for. Um, so that's that's where the Christmas number one is so important. Um, in terms of ourselves being on top on top of the pops, um, it was massive. You know, that was where I tuned in to watch people like you know, like I said, all my all my all my heroes like D Train, uh, um, um, uh, D Train, and 
and and um, and Cool and the Gang and, and New Edition. That's where I tuned in to see all the all the greats, you know. Um, for ourselves, though, being on the there was there was a point that we got to with Emanate where we knew where we wanted to go and how big we wanted to be. And for us, it got to the point that things like Top of the Pops was a bit of formality for us. And I don't mean that in a way of looking down on it. I looked at it more in a way as that's where we thought we needed to be. We worked really, really hard. And we kind of, we kind of shot, shot for the, we, we, you know, we shot for the moon and hit the stars. We'd end up on shows like that anyway. It became part and parcel of what we were trying to achieve as, a, as, as one of, the, one of the, the young, big black groups of the time. We really, we really thought that it was where we, where we should be. For us, more, more than anything else, it was more, well, we got on shows like that, it was more about how can we emulate this and how can we keep this going, you know? So it was brilliant being on that. I mean, once you get a, a, a number two single or a number a top 10 single in the UK, you're going to be on the show. But for us, it was like, okay, we've done this. How can we keep this going? Or how can we top it, you know? How can we keep this moving? You know, a lot of people will, will, will see that as the goal and then they'll, they'll fall off. But for us, it was like, yeah, how can we, you know, how can we build on this? Right. And then another thing that I found interesting as far as, UK television is concerned that Saturday mornings, you guys were very big on Saturday morning programming for kids, tweens, and teens. You guys had programs such as Going Live, Live and Kicking, and then you guys did the Australian equivalent, Hey, 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 it's Saturday. So what was that like going to perform on those shows, knowing that the market that you were trying to reach, it fit what they were showing on those programs on Saturday mornings in those countries? It was highly important. It was highly important having those media kind of outlets for us to be able to to reach and connect with the kids who liked our music, particularly being what we were as a young black group as well. When people got to see us on those shows, they got to see the humanity. They got to see themselves in us rather than just seeing these guys dancing about on stage and being seeming like they were, they were a million miles away. They, they, they had an opportunity to connect and see, see themselves in us, you know? Um, um, for me, growing up in the UK, um, Myself, I, I know the I knew the importance of these Saturday shows. The weather's so bad in the UK that that um that um you know most of you spend most of your time indoors watching TV shows. You know you watch your you 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 watch your cartoon flicks in the morning, and then you watch your your favorite music bands perform on these TV shows. So so we, we you know we, we, it was it was it was it was highly important and really really um um crucial to our career being on those shows. It really it really helped to to, to springboard us. It's crucial mm -hmm. to us. Right. Life. Sounds like weather in the UK was like Seattle, Washington, where it's rain, mm -hmm. it's cloudy, dreary. There's nothing to do but to um, either stay inside and watch TV or go to a greasy spoon and get something to eat. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So everything becomes slightly inward looking. You know, it's, it's like you read a book or you listen to an album or you watch your favorite TV show. That becomes your, your highlight. That becomes, the, you know, the thing you do. So because of that captive audience, it's, you know, it's a real opportunity for a young band or someone who has something to offer to really, you know, put themselves out there, you know, and, and, and be known. Right. Got and captive audience there. Right. And whose decision was it to cover Happy by Surface, which I didn't know until maybe a year or so ago that was originally done by a UK group called, I think, High Tension was their name. Yes. It wasn't really yes. a big hit for them until Surface said, we're going to record it for ourselves. It became a yeah. huge hit. And then was later sampled by Carl Thomas and Cool G Rap uh -huh. and Nas for Fast Life. So who idea yep. was it for you guys to cover Happy? All right, it's a bit of a bit of a long story, but I'm going to get into it a little bit. Um, if you recall, I was talking about when we got signed by by Mick Clark um, for 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 on Sony, the the legendary A and R guy. And um, rest in peace, by the way. He he passed away about three years ago. So so I, I also need to be quite respectful when I talk about him as well. But um, what happened because that lag time when he was quite unwell, 
during the time when we were we were developing our sound and our album to be released, um, we missed out on a lot of the love that he would normally would have given to a lot of the the acts he'd signed. Um, so I, I, I'm, in no one's in in, in to not dress it up. I, I'd say that the album initially was a bit of a rush job. We were thrown in the studio with a bunch of up and coming producers, and we had to make the best of a bad situation. So we end up with this 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 demo of about you know probably like ten. 15 songs that we kind of didn't have a lot of input on. We didn't have a lot of, you know, creative input in. And, um, and for the, compared to where um, we kind of saw ourselves before and what we were trying to be, it was kind of slightly missing the target in terms of the music that was already, that was already chosen for the album. Um, so we sat down and we brainstormed. Now I'd spent a lot of time in the studio myself because it was, it was kind of like a new edition type situation where, you know, they based the sound around my voice. So a lot of the Emanate sound was actually myself. So I spent a lot of time in the studios and I would actually, I had a bit of license to pick and choose songs that I wanted to record. So things like, um, um, I've, I've got something for you. I, I pulled that out of a, I pulled that out of a, 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 a stash of demos and I reworked it with the producers for, for, for the group to sing. I was, I was big on a lot of early, early, early um, uh, groups like um, Immature and I kind of saw it, I saw it like a, a Munchies type track, you know? And I reworked that with the group. And also Happy was another one that would kind of like lend it, it would, it would allow us to still keep that pop sound resonate with the British with the with the British community but also it, it also it also hinted at a lot of the new jack swing music that was around and what was to come you know that whole 808 sound electronic kind of synths mixed with that really really cool cool school kind of sound you know and um so 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 happy was a song that uh, was suggested by uh, a, a a young head of radio a young girl called Sam Withy really she became a really good friend she's still a good friend now she was a young girl same age as us listened to the same music that we did in East London and um, she was like, I can totally hear you singing this song, okay? I can totally hear you singing this song. So she, she helped to, to, you know, to, to, to fight for us to, to get to record it. And, and so that got on. So that was that, that song, um, Baby It's You, um, um, Only Let Me In, and I wasn't before you were before that we, we battled to put on the album to create um, that, you know, that, that emanate sound we have. Um, then what we did with the, with, with the track was we, um, we recorded it in a studio um, in, in, uh, in uh, West London called, um, I can't remember the Monroe Studios, I think it was, Mar Marcus Studios was the name of it, with an up-and-coming producer called, um, called Andy Whitmore. Andy Whitmore was a guy that played a lot of stuff for, for, um, for Alexander O'Neill, and um, he, he played some really, really quite, quite huge bands, um, Tenshot Derby, played for Elton John, he was a really accomplished keyboard player, a bit of a maestro. So, so he, he understood where that song was coming. He was a bit of a soul boy. He understood where that song was coming from. So he, he managed to lace it with his feel and, and try to give it a bit of an authentic feel. And, um, and so that's where we kind of sat with Happy at the time. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, we went on to, um, to tour with that song. We, we, we eventually got on. I know, I know you'll, probably, you'll probably bring this up later on, but we went on to tour with Janet Jackson for about three months on, on her 95 Janet tour. We toured for about three months consistently and became very close with a lot of her bandmates because Janet isn't really make, messing about when she chooses the people that tour with her. A lot of her bandmates are really accomplished musicians that played on a lot of stuff. And I managed to um, work with, the, managed to um, um, make good friendships with a guy called Brian Simpson. Um, Brian Simpson called me up one day and he said, hey, he said, okay, um, um, do you know that I, I wrote um, for the first time for Surface? He said, I was a producer and writer for Surface. He said, I also played on the original of Happy and I really like what you guys did with it, you know? And I thought it was a really nice touch. You know, it made a lot of sense of it later on. Um, but yeah, there's it's, it's a huge story behind that. Um, um, also led to the Jodeci remix as well, obviously through Pete Thomas. Um, Dalvin, Dalvin got on and he, he, 
he got a chance to, to, to you know, to, to, to show what he was about on that track. And they, they, the beautiful thing about working with Jodeci on that track as well, they actually found it was quite refreshing to work with ourselves because they really liked that clean pop sound we had because Jodeci are all about it. You know, they, they're, you know, you know, I don't have to tell you who Jodeci are, what they're about. And they found it quite refreshing to do something slightly different. And they really liked our take on, on what was happening and what they were right. looking to do as well. Yeah, definitely. Jodeci, big, 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 and they're from my home state of North Carolina. Yeah. So, you know, I was like super hyped and to see that you guys worked with Dalvin on a special yeah. mix for Happy. It just made me feel like, man, you guys are like all that. And then also at this same time, 3T was making some noise over in Europe. They just released Brotherhood, which my favorite album. Then also Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were just going over to Europe to cut their yes. teeth before they came back over here to the States to be polished. So what was that like seeing 3T explode? Because I think one year they were the second biggest group in the UK next to the Spice Girls and then seeing That's the right. infancy of Backstreet Boys and NSYNC before they came worldwide phenomenons. That's right. Look, I, 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 I really, we, we really got on really well with the guys from 3T. I remember bumping into them for the first time when we, I think we were in Germany or something, and they'd come to see their aunt Janet when she was touring. And they were young, quiet kids. Um, and I, I it, you know, it didn't even hit me that they weren't, they weren't to be musicians, but they obviously, being part of that family, they, you know, I, I was probably a little bit naive to assume that they wouldn't be releasing. But yeah, they were cool kids. And I remember the guys would heck on me and go, hey, hey, there's, there's a group called 3T, they, they should be called 3, 3 KGs. <laughs> they remind me of you. They were, they were, you know, they they had that whole look that 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 we that we had and the whole thing, and and they had that Jackson thing to go with it. I thought they were really really cool, and um, yeah, no, they 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 were really really good lads, and and uh, yeah, I like I really like what they did, and uh, like their spin on on things. They kind of came slightly after Eminem, and um, yeah, I, I copped it heaps. They were like, oh my god, there's three kgs. I always thought they were more, more Michael Jackson, <laughs> but they, they they were good. They were good. Um, Backstreet Boys, um, they came up at a time when we, so when we were promoting, when I told you we went on this really exhaustive promotional exercise to promote m and and really win hearts and minds because people have never seen a, a group like us before, we went on this thing in the UK and it, they call them road shows in the UK. And it's when you take a, um, an act and you, you get him on all the major kind of festivals, like they were, they always linked with like a, a kid's magazine. So I don't know, maybe in the States you have magazines like Write On Magazine and and a few of the, the teeny pop magazines, they would actually have an event component to what they would do, um, uh, like a live component of what they did when they bring their bring live tours to an audience using the branding of a magazine. So we'd get on many, many uh, magazine tours, like Now Magazine Tour and Smash It's Magazine Tours. And that's when we, we got to move around with a lot of the big bands. We got to tour, we got to perform alongside groups like Take That and Boyzone and E17, a lot of the big bands from the day, even some groups like Snap and, 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 um, and, and groups like um, EYC and Two in a Room, groups that have kind of made a bit of noise over, overseas. And with m our thing was always to bring that real, was to really show, uh, you know, we, we, we wanted to be superstars. We wanted to go on stage and be the hugest everything. We got to really show, show what we were about. We had a different spin, spin on, a different take on things to a lot of the other groups that were performing with us. And quite often people would say, oh, we were the act of the, act of, act of the night, we were the act of the evening. And uh, we were making a lot of noise. And especially when we came with that whole P-Funk inspired um, 7669 kind of like um, urban, chunky, for you sound. When we came with that and the way we would perform it, um, we caught the attention of a lot of American acts that were looking to break the UK. Because what they saw in us, were they, they, they saw a way of doing it without being too European. You know, they saw a, they saw a UK act that was, that was breaking it using the same kind of language that you guys 
have overseas. And I feel those bands are bands like Amigos on the Block and NSYNC. They, they, um, you know, I, I remember meeting, um, sorry, not Amigos on the Block, sorry, Backstreet Boys. I remember meeting meeting Backstreet Boys backstage um, uh, for the first time, I think, in France. And the whispers was like, there's a young group, they're going to be like Amigos on the Block, and these guys love you. These guys think you guys are amazing, and they're really looking to you to create their new sound and 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 break the UK market, you know. And um, we were quite flattered by it, you know. We'd tour with them and we'd hang out with them quite a bit. We'd be singing "Do What" with them backstage. We'd be playing computer games with Nick Carter, and we, you know, we we really we we, we toured quite closely together. Sometimes you're just thrown together with each other, and we spend we spend we spend weeks and months touring together around the UK and Europe, breaking our act. Um, at the time, there was a there was a producer. His name was um, well, I went to the we went to the Swedish Music Awards. I think around ninety six, ninety five, ninety five, and bumped into a producer called Herbie Cricklow. He was a young guy that came from North London, really, really talented um, rapper, producer. And he had a bunch of songs for us. Um, he was working with um, I think Dennis Pop and Max Martin at the time. This is prior to Britney Spears and all the big stuff that came out came out late years later. And he was really keen to write some of Eminem's music. You know, because he had some stuff that would suit our sound. He went on to write songs like Get Down and, and We Got It Going On, which sounded quite eerily reminiscent of our, our sound, you know? And um, those songs eventually went to groups like Backstreet Boys, and obviously they, they sold it to their audience and, and did what they did and, and, and blew up. I mean, you've got to do what you've got to do, hey? And, um, and yeah, yeah, the rest is history. We, we, it's all, it was all quite, um, quite um, um, how can I put it, incestuous in terms of the sound and the way we were kind of moving and working with our acts. And I think Backstreet Boys kind of benefited from being exposed to bands like ourselves. I, yeah. I think kind of, I think kind of unfairly people accused them of stealing our sound. I think it's something I wanted to kind of expand a little bit. They, 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 I, think they, I don't think they had any say so in terms of stealing our sound, but they definitely benefited from a band like us being around, you know, and building that platform. Yeah, they definitely did because they released We Got It Going On here in America, and I think it was like 93, yeah. didn't take off over here. That's right. But it exploded in that's Europe, right. and that's where the infamous Lou Pearlman sent them over to say, hey, you guys are going to work over here because you guys are exploding uh -huh. because the pop market was already ready over in the UK for that's them right. because over here in America, New Kids was gone, and it was pretty much gangster rap and grunge, so pop wasn't really in right. in America at the time. But once Hanson and Spice Girls broke over here in America, that's where they were like, okay, fellas, it's time to come back home. That's right. That's right. Yeah, they 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 definitely won the marketplace for them. Interesting thing with with um with Backstreet Boys for us, the way if you, if you were there at the time in the UK, the way they were to emanate was kind of how you'd say because on the block was to New Edition. That was how they were received compared to Eminate, If you understand what I'm talking about, so you know that um you know Nickers and um, New Edition was was spawned by Maurice Starr, and I think Nickers on the Block was spawned by Maurice Starr as well. Correct. You could say that you could say that with Backstreet Boys, the way they reached that other audience, they tapped into an audience that 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 looked like them and, and connected with them, was the same way that Backstreet Boys managed to take what we were doing and take it to their audience, you know, in a way that that didn't have to require a lot of work, you know. And mm -hmm. and, and 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 for us, we you know we re-experienced it first, and we're like, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second, this is this is um. But it, it, I've got to say it with a dose of respect. It wasn't without discrediting them. Those guys worked really, really hard. You know, they worked really, really hard, and they knew what they were doing, and they executed a plan. But yeah, the the way it kind of went over was yeah, it, it came over kind of like the Osmonds to the Jacksons. 
kind of thing. Right. And, and you um, mentioned in Herbie, yeah. in Herbie, he did Gotta Be You for 3T, which for me was my favorite cut off of yeah. the Brotherhood album. Because when I heard that and then heard the U.S. debut of Bashy Boys, I was like, mm. 3T kind of had that early Bashy Boy sound before they exploded. Yes. That's right. That's right. 3T, 3T were... Um, um, look and sound wise, the, 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 again, the, the, it was a melting pot. You know, as you, as you know, it's it's much like how we you may observe the New Jack Swing area. You know, you see people like, you know, um, I don't know um, what Guy was doing, and then you see Bobby Brown with my prerogative. You know, he didn't copy Guy, but you know, he kind of followed that sound. There was a, it was it was a really nice buzz happening around '95 where you had like this little, you know, um, um, uh, a beige-looking dude like myself with braids in my hair <laughs> singing singing smooth, and and then you had 3T come out and. They kind of looked like that, but they had that kind of Jackson-esque feel to it. And then you had like this this whole um, European sound that Herbie was kind of creating with Max Martin and Dennis Pop in the States and and, and, and those guys. And then you had Backstreet Boys, which had another tinge on it. It was like this really, real nice little buzz. It was a bit like Uptown or a bit like what was happening, you know? It was, it was, it was, a, it was a real cool kind of like um, cool time for what was to come afterwards. Yeah, de definitely that. And you mentioned you guys went on tour of E17. Now, E17... I thought it was super dope. I thought Deep was a good record, but the one record by E17 I really loved was Ghetto. Brian Harvey could have fit in the U.S. as an R&B singer, easily. Yeah, Brian Harvey. Brian Harvey was a good singer. He was, he was, he was a talented dude. He, he, um, with E17, the funny thing with E17 was, I, I, if anything, I think Eminate, um, E17's market was very close to Eminate. So, so, when you had take that, you know, with that whole kind of dance kind of kind of thing, we called it, we called it, they called them the kind of acts that kind of like, um, take that was a kind of act that would kind of lure in the girls and the, and the grannies, you know, um, um, really safe um, pop um, boy next door kind of thing. Whereas E17 were a little bit rough around the edges. They were like your, your I know, I'd say they were the boy band version of Eminem. If I, if mm -hmm. I say, and they were, they were bringing like a quite a, um, they were bringing kind of like a slight, um, um, black influence sound to a, a Caucasian marketplace that wasn't really that familiar with it. So they kind of really warmed the marketplace up for acts like ourselves. When by the time we came out, that marketplace was quite receptive to bands like Emanate, you know? Mm. Um, Brian Harvey, even when we were tour, I, I, you know, I got on very well with Brian Harvey. We'd do a lot of like magazine shoots together. We'd always catch up. It, it was like, you know, sometimes when you see people and you connect, we connected with them quite well. And, and, but but um, they had their own little tensions, I think, in their own group. Some people wanted to have a different direction. Brian Harvey, his heart was in purely in R and B, you know. His heart was purely in R and B. So, so, so it was, it was, you know, he, yeah, they were an interesting, interesting group. I think, um, uh, I think uh, Brian Harvey, you know, he, we were the sort of band that he wanted to take that to it, it'd be something to be. We were the right. kind of band that he wanted him to be. Yeah, because I noticed Take That tried to add a little bit more urban influence on the Nobody Else album, because like, sure, it had a very R&B sound, but their look, like you and I both know, straight yeah. pop, while you guys yeah. at E17 had more of the Jodeci extended, where it was more edge, and I'm real good friends with Mark Gay from Shy, and I had told uh -huh. him about when E17 covered um. If you have, if I ever fall in love with Gabrielle, yes. and he was yeah. like, man, it just goes to show how much influence the U.S. has all over the world to where you're looking at us and just taking what local elements you guys got, putting your own spin, 
Now, when you guys did the Smash Hit polls party, for those of us that are not in the know, Smash Hits would be like the UK equivalent to what 16 or Tiger Beat would be in America, where you do your colorful layouts and you do those dumb questionnaires where they ask, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite song? Ideal Girl. Did you hate doing yeah. those? <laughs> um, um. I, I, um, they do become exhaustive, but I, I kind of understand from the point of view as a, of a young kid who's kind of curious, who kind of wants to know more about the act, you know, the young kid, you're, you're impressionable. It gives that, it gives, it gives the, uh, the, it gives the, the, the respond, the opportunity to connect with the artist. So I, I kind of, I, it was, it was, it was exhausting, but I kind of understood the why, you know, um, I know exactly what you mean. I kind of understood the why. It was it was important to to still do it and connect with those people. It was an opportunity to to let people what we were about. You know, someone just even thinking that, yo, hey, you know, Katie, you're a Virgo, you're like me. You know, it, 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 people can make those connects. You know, and they can connect with you on that on that human level. So it was frustrating, but it was important. Right, was important and and you guys come off the success of the debut album, and you guys are going to make the sophomore album freaky. What was that process uh -huh. like, knowing that you guys are huge and you're going to the studio to create the follow-up and it has to be just as good if not better than the debut that that was where things became a little bit kind of slightly trickier so so where we were with certain management they had um uh, if i have to put it in a really um no uncertain terms I, i'd say that there was incentive for the people that were looking after us to have us use certain producers the producers were in their stable they had certain elements of control, and I suppose you know there were probably some certain types of um, it kind of made financial sense for them without being accusatory of anything. You know, when it came to things like Freaky, the idea of Eminent initially was for us to be able to go and record um, an album on our own terms and 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 put our sound out to the world. But when we got to the point where we were recording Freaky, we didn't get as much love from the labels for the label uh, um, to do what we wanted to do. You know. And um, there were a few things that had happened, a few, a few, a few moving parts in the background that kind of, a few things that happened in the background that kind of didn't serve us so well. And we found that by the time we got to do Freaky Year, a lot of the support that we had early on just kind of wasn't there as much. They kind of left us almost to our own devices and the curation wasn't there as much and the promotion wasn't there as much. Um, the important thing for us though was Emanate was we wanted to just start, slowly start to try to affect what we wanted to do. So we went for that period of, of, of um, I was releasing a bunch of, um, sorry, of, of recording a bunch of demo, demos with the same producers, probably four or five. And then we were sent away to a, a studio up, um, up in an area called Liverpool in, in England, slightly up, up north to where we, where we are in London. And it's, it's uh, Phil Collins' studio. It's where Genesis used to record their massive epic albums. They'd go and camp out there for like weeks on end and record these, these, these huge rock, rock albums. So we got to live in this, 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 this space, um, um, fully decked out studios with new desks and a whole bit. And we got, had a chance to pull in producers that we wanted to work with. So I kind of took a little bit of lead on that. I was the one in the group that was like, um, I was known as the producer within the group. You know, every group has their own in-house producer, a visionary, I was the guy. So, so I pulled in a lot of producers that I'd worked with, a guy called um, um, uh, Peter Ibsen Paleface. He's, he does a lot of stuff in, he does a lot of music now for people like, you know, Talisa and, and a few other UK and European acts. And um, I pulled in another guy called Mark Lewis, who was, um, who was a, he was a bit of a hip hop producer. He used to work for, um, for Def Jam, did a lot of like really good remix work. Um, I pulled in my brother to work on some stuff and a few other session musicians. We managed to quaff a few songs that sounded a little bit, a little bit more like where we wanted to go. Um, but I found that because we had that kind of pull and input, again, 
the the love wasn't there from the label and that kind of fed into how that album was actually recorded it was the first time we actually released an album and fans didn't know it was even out you know it was like those kind of things were going on in the background and we kind of thought oh wait a second the writing's in the wall here you know um and that was when things started to go a little bit pear-shaped Right. And normally when that happens, when the label's not supporting you or you don't have a champion yeah. inside the label going to bat for uh -huh. you to the major heads, that's when yeah. you don't really get the promo dollars. You're not going on all the big right. music shows. You're not going on that's BBC right. One or Capital Radio or you're not getting that's on right. Top of the Pops or CD UK. And that's when it all right. starts to... I know you're probably surprised that I know so much about UK stuff, right? No, I'm not actually. I think I I I I'm not surprised you're actually quite well informed. I like, I don't think you would you would you would you would have come into this you know half prepared. I've I've listened to your interviews, so yeah, no, 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 I'm not that surprised. But I'm glad you've done your research. Really glad. Yeah, yeah. Have a good conversation about it. Yeah, like I was telling you, you know, I have a definitely strong love and um, respect for everything that came out of the UK because I'm a big pop fan. You know, from Spice Girls to Another Level yeah. to Five uh -huh. to Damage who I felt yeah. should have blown up here in America, but it just shows that music is colorblind. It is knows no boundaries, no regions. Right. It's all one and the same. Now with the second right. album, not really doing as well as the debut, Tough At To Follow. And uh, I believe it was only two singles that was released off of the yep. sophomore album. Um, was yep. there a point where you guys kind of felt like, okay, we've done all that we can do here at Columbia. Should we try to go shop at another label? Should we take an indefinite hiatus? Hey, and was there ever tension with the other guys in the group where you were pretty much the primary focus and they felt like, hey, I want to do more. I want to show what I can do as well. Definitely, definitely. You picked up on a lot. Um, um, so yeah, definitely. Look, I'll, I'll start with the, um, I'll start with, the 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 tension surrounding everything. So when we when we were looking to get on, obviously we were the most important thing for us as a young group. When we were young M and A, and we were banding about London, singing on on shoes, doing do what, let's do what group, you know, busking and doing all the things we did. We had these dreams of being as big as if not bigger than Jodeci. You know, we wanted to be the hugest thing ever. We wanted to have careers like the Jacksons or or New Edition and go solo and do all these amazing things later on. When we came across an opportunity through the label we signed to, we thought, okay, look, you know, it isn't the most ideal um, label deal for us. They're paying a lot of money, but in terms of control, it didn't give us everything we wanted, we wanted it to give us. But we thought, you know, it will get us on. And when people get to see us, we'll, 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 we'll connect with people in a way that will secure everything in the future. Also, we'll negotiate that later on we'll have that kind of control, you know, um, 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 in, the, in, the, in the second, third or fourth albums and start building and forging those separate careers for ourselves. Now, when it got to a point that where um, we started recording the first album because of the sound and because of what was popular at the time and because out of all the guys in the group, I mean, I, I kind of, um, uh, you know, I probably had the more unique sound of the guys at the time and, um, and it helped to create, you know, the Emanate sound for, for a while and I was thrust into the front. Um, I kind of, um, I kind of, um, how can I put it? It was kind of off script for a lot of the other guys in the group. We, we were a group a little bit like New Edition, like I said before. Um, um, and I, I suppose to use, use an example, I recently saw um, Ralph Chesfant talking in an interview. I, I can't reference the interview right now, but it's, it's one of the recent ones in the last three or four months. And he was talking about um, the new edition guys going solo, Velvet DeVoe and, um, and Bobby Brown and Johnny Gill doing their things. But whereas when in the edition, they were all behind him. And he said this thing, he said, look, he said, the thing with the edition that people didn't realize is the reason why these things have to happen was because 
there was so much talent within the group and, and, and the group didn't always provide the outlet for these people to go out and be who they wanted to be. And I think, so for us, the same thing with Emanate. I said, when we got together, we were all solo artists with something to offer. When we were in Emanate, they were bunched together behind me, um, creating a sound. It didn't necessarily, you know, I don't think it was necessarily always the most fulfilling thing for those people as individuals. And for it, I, I kind of was on the out. I was, the same things that, you, I don't know if you saw the, the, the new edition um, uh, biopic. Um, I, I've seen him plenty of times. Community. Plenty of times. Okay, excellent. Exactly what happened to Ralph Chesney is exactly what I went through. So exactly the way he was viewed by the band members, exactly the same opportunities to go solo, all those things that were happening was exactly what happened to me within the group. I understood it. I understood it from their side and I understood it from my side, but it just was what it was. And I always held out hope that we'd get to a point where, you know, we, they would get to do their solo things. We would get to do something later on. But I was also quite adamant that the sound had to be what the sound was, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Now, if you add that to the politics that were going on around Eminem being the first black group, and then obviously the, the, the same thing that typically happens to every group that makes a lot of noise, you have great people who, 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 who are out there to really help, but you also have a lot of shock. You have a lot of people who are looking to, to, uh, to get what they can from you, you know? And, you know, if you have a contract from someone who, who, who seems well-meaning, you better read the, read the fire print and have your, have your lawyer look over it because people will always make, will always put, put will always, will always um, um, give contracts to you that, that totally serve their own interests. So there were things like that were happening around us. And the guys, as a, as a collective, with all of this stuff buzzing around us, we felt like we were in a bit of a pressure cooker situation. But for me, because everyone was in a pressure situation, I became the target of a lot of those things within the group. If you understand what I mean. And um, for a little stint, it became a little bit counterproductive, you know? Right. Um, so this all happened around the time of the second album. Um, and, um, and we, our relationship wasn't the best it could be. Very similar to what was happening in the audition. It wasn't the best situation. It was, okay, I've seen it, you've seen it before. You see it with um, the Jackson seat with the way Jermaine may have looked at Michael Jackson when he went solo. You know, Jermaine was like, if you watch the Jacksons, Michael, Jermaine was coming up before Michael was singing. Jermaine was the guy, you know? Jermaine was the first one to go solo, went with Motown, you know? So he kind of thought he should have had his way. But when Michael was coming up and he had a little bit of stomach and he was resonating with people in a certain way, I think it caused a little bit of friction there, you know, that, that relationship you can see from afar. So those things, like I said before, they were happening with m and and it was happening at a time when the industry wasn't really, um, the, the people that were supporting us on the first album weren't supporting us as much. People were looking to make as much money out of us as they could. And for us, we reached a point where it was like, you know what, we've made a little bit of money for ourselves. We've made a little bit of a name for ourselves. Perhaps this is the platform. Perhaps this is the best it will ever be, right? So we thought, you know what we'll do? instead of negotiate our way into a, a new contract straight away, you know, because our relationship was a little bit fractured, a little bit tense. We, we love each other like brothers. You know, I've got, I've got a bunch of brothers myself, so my brother Glenn and a few other brothers I have, and we don't always get on. And what we do is we separate. We, 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 we have time apart from each other and then we get back together. So with us with Emanate, we kind of thought, you know what, this is really tense. Instead of us going and, 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 and signing a deal straight away with all these, like, and, and, and being a bit dysfunctional and fractured, let's just, like, just take some time out, you know? The band never, ever broke up. The band's actually still together today. <laughs> funnily, funnily enough, we check in on each other all the time, Christmas, birthdays. You know, we're always keen to know what each other are doing. And we're always lining up. We're always looking out for the next tour. We're looking for an opportunity to get together and do something in the future. But, um, but for us at the time, because of what the industry was doing to us and because of you know, our fractured relationships, it was easier just to go and have lives, you know, create lives for ourselves and, and do the things we never got to do, you know? 
yeah. and, and, and grow ourselves as individuals. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's, it's been a good thing, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really the way it should have gone. But, um, but it, I, think, I think that's what needed to happen at the time. Yeah, you guys definitely saw through the snake and the grass and you had the foresight to say, hey, let's not continue on when we're not in a good space because you want to make right. sure that everything is good, the relationship is good because when you sign right. that record deal, you don't want to sign on the dotted line, be back that's at your right. mom's house and then have to go down that's the right. of UB40. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's it's, how the band UB40 got his name. They uh, Really, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all, but yeah, yeah that's, that, that, that's, that's actually yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that, that's how UB40 got their name was for the form that was go. for unemployment over in the UK. There you go. There you go. There you go. I, I knew I knew of the form, but I didn't know that they actually, yeah, I didn't think it was as deliberate. I it was, it was a, a coincidence with yeah. ourselves. Exactly that. It was risk versus reward. See, at the time, now, by the time we, we, we'd split up, we'd, we'd had hit after hit after hit. We hadn't had one flop in the UK in terms of our singles. We had the, we had the, the clout. And we kind of achieved what we wanted to achieve. We achieve, we'd actually achieved things that were way beyond what anyone had expected of a young black group in the UK at the time. So again, as I said before, a lot of group bands that came after us, Damage came after us, 3T came after us, Backstreet Boys came after us, Spice Girls came after us. But there was nothing like us before we came out. You know, right. We've really, we really set that, really blazed that trail. There was absolutely right. nothing, if you track back. Right. Absolutely but, nothing happened before us. Right, but does yeah, it kind of gnaw at you a little bit that you guys had all the success in the UK, but you guys didn't really have the same effect over in the States and you felt like Colombia could have done more to push you guys over in America? Y- yes and no. Yes and no. I, I, that's a really good question. For us, we, when we went to America, so we went to the States um, probably... I think it was around, we spent probably like a month there um, uh, initially in New York. We did all the magazines, you know, it's on the right one magazine. And we went to, we went to Donny Ina's ranch and we, we were launching the Bad Boys album out there. We, we got to do all those things and move about. And what we realized very quickly was that same massive roadshow run that we did when we were trying to launch ourselves in the UK, when we were performing for like a year to six months, traveling, doing three or four venues a day. Um, visiting schools, doing every single interview we, we could get into, just getting our names and ourselves known and, and blowing people away with our performances. We couldn't go to America and overnight become a huge success. We realized we had to actually go and work it. We had to go and tour. I know, you know, the, the America, American market is very, very, um, very complex. Um, I, I suppose the analogy is that the first time we, we became aware of it was when we watched the movie The Five Heartbeats, when they had to get in a little van and they had to go to every single state and tour. Every little mom and pop club, that's the one. The hole in the wall radio station. It's a, it's a different, it's a different beast over here in the states. And I probably maybe that's probably why Take That didn't really have success here in America because Bat for Good was their only U.S. hit because it takes a lot more work to come over here to America and really make it. Because when you're an international act, you got your bullseye on America because you can be big in France, you can be big in Uh England. That's you right. big in Spain, but if you make it in America, America uh-huh. is where it's at because you saw what happened to all the acts that came out of the second British invasion from Spandau yep. Ballet to Adam Ant to Duran Duran. Right. When they got huge in That's America, right. their phenomenon went into over Wham, George right. Michael, Bill Collins. Yep, exactly. exactly. That was exactly what it was. And that was actually in the pipeline. So that was the next thing. We were actually going to go to the States and live there for a while and actually make our name. That was the whole idea. But the things we knew we had to get away from what we were doing in the UK and go over there and, and actually do it properly. 
But at the time, we were kind of like a bit of a wounded animal, like in terms of our own relationships with each other and what was happening with our contracts. We kind of thought, you know what? We don't have the, I don't think we have the stamina to do it right now. You know, it's a risk versus reward thing. And there are other ways. I think also, obviously, that was also a, um, you could say that the, um, the conditions they were based on also the technology, you know, what was going on at the time. You see, again, um, let's just talk a little bit about Europe. Um, one thing that hit me really hard was um, when, I, when I was a young kid uh, growing up with my parents. We, I grew up in a relatively middle class background with my parents. And, and we, we, you know, we'd, we'd go on holiday to Spain and Germany and Belgium and places like that when I was a kid. But, you know, half the countries in Europe, I, I, you know, I'd only ever seen on TV. It's a stone's throw away from London. But they were, they, you know, you, just an hour's flight away and you're in a completely different land that's completely foreign. Now, for me, as soon as you drop, I've got something for you, because of MTV at the time, I was getting fan mail from places like Oslo and Norway and places like, you know, places like Hungary and these Baltic states. And, they, and I was thinking, how do these people even know me? I didn't even know these places kind of existed. You know, I can't even fathom these places. And, and it, was, it, was, it was the power of the technology at the time. MTV was, 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 was nuts in the 90s. Now, in terms of UK, there was a separation between MTV Europe and MTV States, so MTV in, in the US. So obviously we didn't make, it wasn't easy to make that transition and that leap. But today you see things differently. You see a kid on TikTok in the UK will blow up in the UK, in the US based on technology. So basically, yeah, I think, so I think a lot of, a lot of the, the requirement to go and work the market and live there for a long time was based on the fact that we were still using that stale, stale mail kind of approach and doing things very slowly. But the, 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 way, the, the way the industry is now, you come up with a song like Booed Up by LMA and it creates a buzz and you, you can be on fire overnight, you know, in every territory. Right, definitely that because once again, this was pre-internet and this is when the world right. seemed a lot bigger and then also marketing strategies were a lot different because if you take a look at right. Bastry Boys and NSYNC's international and US albums, same mm -hmm. songs, but they just swapped a few out in order to appeal to what was going on over here in the US. So I think probably right. that same strategy would have been adopted by you guys had you guys decided to really do a full us run which yeah. was to just make a couple of changes to where the album would be more r&b rap That's heavy because right. i mean you guys had diddy do one of his first remixes so i definitely felt you guys probably would have fit perfectly on bad boy that's right well the, 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 the thing is it was you know, you're, you're bang on right we we when we went to the states i mean i know i know puffy was at the time puffy calling diddy now puffy was really he was his nose was a bit out of joint that we didn't use his 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 remix as the, as the main single uh, there was also a situation where, and this is this is to tell you what was going on. This is this is to give you a hint at the frustrations within the label. Um, and when we were releasing Happy, um, one of the the, the, the cameos was by a, a rapper, an upcoming rapper called Notorious B.I.G. When it was when it was proposed to the label in the UK to use this guy, they were like, "Who the hell is he? He's an unknown." And we were like, "This guy, this guy." <laughs> you, know, you mean to tell me your living. label turned down Biggie? They turned down Biggie as a feature. Yeah. What? They turned Biggie down. Man, yep. If you guys would have had that, that would have exploded here in the U.S. It'll be getting played now. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so that this is the, these are the kind of things that were going on. So you can understand for us, um, we were at a point at which we had to really. If I have to, the word the, the if I was one word that summed up our whole time as M and A in the UK, it was compromise. We had to compromise all the way through because there were a lot of people that didn't. They were they were they were on this journey with us, but they didn't actually know what they needed to do. Whereas we had our ear to the ground. Right. And when we tell them these things, they say, no, but you'll be too urban. 
I, I remember having full on arguments with executives and they'd be saying, look, you know, I know you want to do this, but it'll be too urban. That term they were using, they were using the term urban quite a lot back then. It'll be too urban cool, and it'll become too small. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Let's call it for what it is, Colbert. Too black. Exactly, exactly. And, and the thing, thing for me, what I was trying to say to them was that, no, what we want to do is we want to build a career. We don't want to have just hit singles. You know, we were prepared as a group. We were prepared to have singles that didn't, like Jodeci didn't always chart in the UK. But Jodeci can, Jodeci can tour, can release in the UK now, and people will be interested. You understand? For us, we wanted to build a legacy of being able to just release songs wherever, you know? We weren't really concerned with having the hits. And we've even found today that the groups that didn't always go for the hits are the ones that still have the career, you know? And that's right. what we were always interested in. Right. And, and, and so things like Notorious B.I.G., we saw that more as an investment. That mm -hmm. would be an investment into us. Yeah. And, uh, but at the time, the label didn't really understand. They didn't really understand what was right. really, really so, going on. So did you think it was because the, the got people that were at the UK division of Columbia didn't understand what was going to work in the US market? Well, yes. I mean, to a certain extent. Um, I'll just, sorry, I've just lost the sound a little bit. Sorry, I just dropped out for a second. Sorry about that. Um, look, yeah. Um, can you hear me? Are you okay? Yeah, you you're good. We're good. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Now, to explain it properly, you know, in the US, when you have, okay, with me, I'm a voracious reader. You know, I read, I've read everything. I, I read everything. And um, the one thing for me, I took a lot of time away after I left um, the UK. And, you know, I read books like Quincy Jones, David Geffen, you know, those famous books that have all been out there, you know, and, and really soaked them up and absorbed them. And I tried to find parallels and lessons and learn things and make sense of what we were going through. And the one thing that really hit me with a lot of these artists, Frank Sinatra, you know, um, Tom Jones, even Tom Jones, who went to the US and blew up and all those kind of things. And what really hit me was that the people that were backing these artists within the labels were people who really knew. They didn't have to necessarily be black, but they were people who actually really knew and understood and loved the music that they were promoting. So, so in, in, in instances where you had people like um, Aretha Franklin, and you had, you had, you had A&R guys or people that really championed them like Armour Urkham. And 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 um, um, I can't remember the name of the um, um, the dude who coined the to coin the term R and B. Um, it's Armour Urkgaard, and um, I can't remember his name. It will come to mind later. Jerry on. Wexler. And um, that's the one, Wexler, Jerry Wexler. Those guys were fanatics. I knew that Armour Urkgaard was the son of a, was the son of a diplomat, and he would when he would when his when his father would travel around Europe, he would sneak out and go and watch the R and B singers singers sing in local theaters. You know, he loved it. He was a fanatic. So when it came to promoting stuff, he knew how to connect with people that were like himself, you know, that young, that young kid of whatever background that really needed to hear that soulful sound that we had. Now, in terms of the UK, a lot of A&R people at the time, they were no longer legendary A&R people that were coming, that were, that were being hired by these labels. A lot of these people were people that might have studied a, a Bachelor of Economics at university in Scotland and probably like listened to acts like, um, 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 probably like listen to stuff acts like um, Rolling Stones or or Morrissey, and they were getting signed and being made A and R people in Sony responsible for signing and marketing a black group, you know, and you know that's just worlds apart. That's crazy. That'd be like a no. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a, a pastry chef, and I'm having to 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 um to run like a um um a, a haute cuisine restaurant, you know, a really sophisticated high end restaurant it, it, it doesn't make sense i have to really understand the product before i can kind of have an import and, and promote it so those are the kind of frustrations we would have and what you often have in those instances when you have a and r guys who are not who are not geared to that particular genre of music 
they tend to make guesses or they tend to look at what someone else is doing before they jump. They don't know, they don't ever want to be the first person because come, um, come their financial review or their quarterly meeting, their butt's on the line, their job's on the line, you know? The dude who grew up listening to Rolling Stones who's having to promote um, 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 Mo Money, Mo Problems by Puff Daddy, if he makes a punt that he doesn't understand, he's going to lose his job. So those things were happening around us. And those are the little, little um, that's little machinery that, that people don't really see. Those are the things that quite often dictate what happens to acts and what people see played on the radio and in the charts, you know? So a lot of the decisions that were being made around Eminate were being made by people who didn't necessarily understand the depth of what we were doing and right. the significance of what we were doing all the right. time. Right. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm curious. Is. Yeah. And I'm curious to know about this. I wanted to know if this was as prevalent in the UK as it was in America. It's still going on, but it's under another name. Um, was there any like payola going on to like BBC One, Capital One, where record pluggers would go in and bribe PDs to play records? You, you know what? I, it, um, I've heard about that happening in the UK. I've heard about it happening a lot in the UK. Um, I haven't really seen it, but I do know that people, how can I put it? Um, if they have an interest in you, they will tend to, you'll get more airplay. Those things do happen, you know, but I don't, I don't know if it's, it's necessarily payola. Um, um, but I, I know that, you know, it's a bit clicky. Like, okay. For instance, when we were, when we were coming up, when we were looking to really break, um, as emanate, I knew that, um, us being successful as Eminem, because we came from, we kind of came from nowhere. How can I put it? Um, when we'd be touring, a lot of the acts we'd rub shoulders with were like, how come we didn't see you? Someone, how come we didn't see you guys come through the talent schools? Or how come we didn't know you um, moving in certain circles in Southeast London? How come we didn't know you? How can you come from nowhere and be so huge, right? It kind of put a few people's noses out of joint. You know how it goes. Yeah, because um, you didn't come up the traditional way didn't come up through them. Yeah. So we found like, for instance, groups like Damage, who I actually love. I think they, I think it's really important. What Damage, I think the work that Damage has done is a continuation of the work that we kind of started, but they're doing it in their own way for their own audience. So I really have a lot of respect for those young guys. I haven't got an ill word to say about them, but we all, we were quite mindful at the time that those guys were getting a lot more love underground than we were because they moved with the right circles of people, you know? They had the they had they had the underground labels on their side early because they they were a young R and B group. They knew what they wanted to do and they weren't compromising in any way. They were doing really cool pop for their audience in their market. You know, really cool kind of like young R and B for their market. You know, whereas we were like trying to go great guns. We were trying to be you know Michael Jackson overnight, and it kind of like stirred people a little bit. So on certain label certain radio stations, we couldn't get any airplay. You know. Mm. Um, and, 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 and so, so in, in terms of, you know, our, even to, in terms of our own communities, they didn't often give us a lot of love initially. It reminded me a little bit of like, even when you see, um, and this is just, a, this is a, an out there analogy, but um, I remember Whitney Houston, one thing that surprised me about her career when I was, you know, watching a few documentaries and a bit of reading, a bit of reading on her. I remember her, um, people saying that at the time when she was releasing songs like I Want to Dance with Somebody, she was, she wasn't getting a lot of love from the black community. You know, no. at the time, because it wasn't all the way R&B. It wasn't ball tearing licks and runs and riffs, and it wasn't completely church. It was something that was slightly out there. And, and she would have, she would have um, superseded a lot of people who kind of people would have thought had paid their dues. You know, she was out there and she went above. She went over the top very quickly. Right. That was kind of with Emanate. We did that in a way. And we came across very shiny and very, very clean cut. And we had a huge um, um, mainstream audience. Yeah, and, and we, we, became, we became huge stars overnight. I mean, to the point that 
you know, I would walk down the street and I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to, I couldn't go into a local McDonald's, you know, I'd go into McDonald's and some guy from some far flung country would be going, how can you be here? You're a superstar in my country, you know, whereas a lot of the U- local UK acts were just barely big in the local community, you know, right, and which is those cra- things were happening. Which is crazy. Cause yeah. I, yeah. Cause I interviewed um, the writer, Michael Walden, and we talked about how Whitney's music early on, it was, it was getting play on R&B radio, but at the same time, they felt it was too pop. But Clive Davis' right. whole intention was, hey, I want to make her cross over. And then when she That's went right. to the Soul Train Music Awards in 1989, she got booed when she got nominated for an award because, once again, the urban audience felt like, your music was not exactly. catered for us. And I think because of that, that was why Clive Davis got Ellie and Babyface to do the I'm Your Baby Tonight album for that's right. And those were the next maneuvers that were to happen with Emanate. But we obviously, we got to the point where it was like, you know, risk versus reward. Do we really want to continue this journey? Things don't feel right. You know, uh, you're exactly right. Um, with ourselves, we were going over the top very quickly. So, you know, you understand, as, as I said before, for, a, for, any, for any boy band at the time, black or white or anything, um, to have a top 10 debut single was huge. It hadn't been done before. Take that hadn't had a top 10 single straight away. They took a long time to have a top 10 single. Emanate went straight in at number two. Which is nuts right? for unheard of. Which is, yeah. And we're talking about a time before streaming, before downloading, people were physically walking into shops and buying singles. So a black group was on the wall with posters in a young white kid's bedroom. So, you know, their parents would never have even moved with people that looked like us. In some parts of England, they had never seen black people. See, in England, there's a concentration really? of black people that live. Yeah, in some parts of England, there's a concentration of black people that tends to be in London, you know, in and around London, like the within like a, a 25, um, 30, 30, 30, um, 30 mile radius, right? Mm. When you go up north, you'll still find you'll find black families and stuff, but they tend to be, you know, a, a, a huge minority. So when we were doing what we were doing, I mean, it was it was it was unheard of. It was absolutely unheard of, and it went it it went big guns. And also, a lot of these young black acts that we were coming up with, they were signed to a lot of independents, as I said before, small independent labels. A new uncle could make some beats and had an uncle at a pirate radio station, and they thought they had it all signed up, sewed up. When this group like us came out and we signed this million dollar deal and we were thrust out in the spotlight, we were on all your mainstream TV shows and your Saturday morning TV shows. It was like how you know these guys are sellouts you know what they how can they've done it? who they've done a deal with to become so huge with us with, and the sad thing for us for us is that we we were never bitter about it we in our minds we were going we're doing this for you mm-hmm. you know so every time so while we while we were out there we, we were we were on the receiving in a lot of venue we were actually quite mindful that you know what you're going to want to break it and as soon as we're done you're going to have a huge shot because we're creating this marketplace for you we're doing it for us, but we're doing it for you. you right, know? definitely that. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the impact that Five Star has had because Five Star was huge oh, in the yes. UK and they crossed over big time over here in America and they kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the urban UKs like your Soul to Souls, your Loose Ends, your 50 yes. Seconds. Well, you're bang on right. You're bang on right with Five Star. I should actually give a nod to Five Star. But in terms of being a boy band, an all all an all black boy band, you see, with us black males, we can be quite threatening. Mm. And for what we did in terms of being what we were in the UK, it was huge. For Five Star was something, yeah. Five Star was very special. They were a very very special act, and they were. And I'm going to give them some. I'm going to give them a nod right here as well. They were a band that, in terms of the vision they had for themselves, was very similar to the vision Eminem had of themselves. 
You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't trying to be the best black group in, in London. You know, they were looking to take over the world. And that was the vision we had for ourselves. Right. You know? Right. And it was tell like me, that. Right. Yeah. And Sorry. tell me about your thoughts on Eternal, because I know you went on tour with Eternal, and Eternal was put together as the UK equivalent to En Vogue. They had a big hit with Stay, and Louise left the group after the first album. They were three piece, and they did Angel Mind before Monica recorded it again, made it an international smash. So, what was it like seeing Eternal and seeing their huge success in the UK? You know what? That is a, a, a really brilliant question. Now, Eternal were like our sisters, okay? Eternal were very, very close to us. So we spent a lot of time with Eternal before either of our acts blew up. So our production company was a production company called First Avenue Management. And First Avenue Management signed Eternal to their label and they signed Emanate. They were the first ones to pick us up. And um, it was run by a, um, um, two gentlemen. One was called Ollie Smallman and, and one of his partners or whatever. And, um, and we were, we, were, we were two acts in their camp. So we would be sitting there like how you have um, Mary J. Blige and Father MC. You know, we were, we were on their label. They were like the, they were like the, uh, the, favorite, the favorite child <laughs> to First Avenue. They were the priority. They were looking to break them. They based them on a girl group in Australia called Girlfriend. And they wanted them to blow up and be the next big girl group. Now, the two older guys had been like fans of old uh, Motown girl groups, like, you know, um, um, you know, um, Supremes, Supremes and Martha Supremes and, and, yeah, yeah, Supremes, those, those kind of groups. And also the Three Degrees who blew up in the UK. They wanted a sophisticated girl group that could do that do what. They didn't necessarily want them to be like in Vogue, which was slightly more sexualized and, and you know, and, 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 and had the whole look. But they wanted like a young kind of up and coming girl group. Esther, the lead singer of, um, of, um, of Eternal, had been like another singer, like Cool T in my group. They'd kind of moved in that same kind of church circuit in South London. And so she was known to be able to blow. She was like a young Karen Wheeler type singer. And so the group was kind of based around her and her sister. And, and then Kelly was like from a talent school. And so was, so was um, Louise. So they were like a precursor. They were like a very clean cut, very clean cut um, pop girl group. And um, we were like the bad boys who were signed to them. We were the guys that they kind of, they didn't want, they didn't want us messing with the girls, you know? We, mm. we, we were kind of out there. You know, you, you just have to look at an M&A video and you know what we were like. We were hard to control. Right. And, um, and so, um, yeah, they got the preferential treatment over us. So when it got to the point that when we were releasing, First Avenue handheld Eternal's hand the whole way. They really supported them and they did the right thing by them and they helped them out. But when we were with Sony, we had to kind of find our own way, you know? We didn't get a lot of support from First Avenue to break ourselves. Oh, Apart man. from the, yeah, we didn't get a lot of support. What we did was we hooked up with us and we've got our own manager. And there's a, a guy called Ralph Daly. I'll give a massive nod to him. We lost Ralph Daly halfway through our, 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 our campaigns. He obviously went on to other projects. He was a huge club promoter. He supported the massive hip hop concerts in the UK. He was affiliated with Pete Thomas in the States. He was responsible for most things that were happening that were all hip hop and, and New Jack Swing and R&B at the time. And he was a very regimented guy. He was like a, a real um, serious kind of like a very religious man, very, very disciplined, well-educated, um, bit like Beyonce's dad, you know? He took that kind of view to emanate and he said, look guys, I'm gonna partner with you guys. He goes, at, the at this particular time, Mick Clark's sick, your head and air guy is sick. The way it's looking is you guys will probably be shelves. You guys probably won't even see the light of day, right? He said, what I wanna do with you guys is I wanna take you guys on the road and we're gonna glop, glop huge. This is where you guys have got to be. 
you guys have got to be really regimented. You guys got to be practicing. You got to work on your craft. We're, I'm gonna I'm gonna start moving to get the sound that you guys need. We got to work with a bad situation. You got a very poppy album, and 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 it, it, as I said before, Ralph was the guy who was um, he was in the know. He had his finger. He had his ear close to the ground. You know, so he knew the urban scene. He knew what was expected of us from the from the black community in the UK. So he was trying to make a bad, best of a bad situation in terms of us being signed as a pop act. And, and trying to make it translate to them at the, and at the same time um, help us get to where we needed to be, you know? So, 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 so yeah, so, so Ralph, Ralph, Ralph was the guy who, who took, took us as an act from First Avenue and helped us blow up and become, an, come, become what we were, you know? Right. In terms of our, 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 um, our appeal and, the, and, and vision, you right. know? And, and, as a, and him being a black man as well, he, he, he it wasn't lost on him. He was the A&R guy that we were kind of lacking, you know? Mm-hmm. So now on to later in the mid nineties when pop in the UK was still blowing. Did you think that the Spice Girls would have crossed over over here in America, or did you think that they were just going to be huge in Europe only and not have the mega success like they did? Because they are the second biggest selling girl group of all time. <laughs> the, uh, Spice Girls. I'll tell you a little story about Spice Girls. Um, when I first met Spice Girls, they, they didn't have a record deal. They were living in a shared house in an area in, in, in Berkshire in the UK, slightly outside of um, London. I think it's like where Kate Middleton, Prince's wife, grew up, like a real leafy suburb. They were renting a shared house and they had this idea that they wanted to be the biggest group in the world. Very similar to Emanate. They were kind of mad enough like us to want to do it as well. They didn't know many people. They just had their vision of being what they were to become. Now, um, I was in, me and Cool T went to Sony one morning and we were sitting in Mick Clark's office. Mick Clark was he the guy signing, all, he was responsible for signing all these big acts and he was sitting in his office and he said, he said, uh, KG, um, T, can you come in my office and check out this, this, this group? They're interested in being signed. Um, I, I want to hear what you, you, what you think of it. So I suppose it was his, his early idea. I think it was his kind of like piecemeal idea of a, of a focus group. I think he usually, I think that was his style. Mick Clark would find an act and he'd field it to a lot of the, the young, maybe black or slightly um, um, in the know ex- executives or people that he was around, see what they think before he, before he made a decision. So he calls me and T in the office and, and Mel B sitting in, in, um, in Mick Clark's chair, like really big and bold and, and, and braggadocious, feet, feet up on the counter. Jerry's, Jerry's in the corner. Posh is like um, in the corner being cool and calm and Baby's just in the corner being cute, right? And, and quiet to herself. And um, Jerry does the talking. Look, guys, yeah, look, I just want to say we're huge fans of Emanate. We've seen what you guys have done. We see ourselves as somewhere between being a T- like TLC and you guys. We see ourselves being out there like Eminate, really bold, the way you guys take over TV stations, the way that you guys speak out, the way you guys perform big and brash. And we also want that call that TLC has, but we want to we want to give it that and, and we want to give it our own feel. So okay, cool. Do an a cappella. They sang a cappella. The girls were on point, a cappella. You could see they've done their work. They talked about their vision and then then they left the room. Mick Clark said to me and he said, What do you think of these girl groups? And I said, Look, you know what? These girls will either, will either be the biggest thing you've ever seen or they'll go nowhere, which is exactly how we viewed ourselves. We viewed ourselves with, I've, I've got something for you. When we put that song out, people were either going to hate it and it was going to bomb, or it was going to be the biggest thing ever, right? When these girls were going to come out, you could see from day one that they were either going to be huge, huge, or they were just going to be ahead of their time and people would not know them. There was no doubt in my mind they were going to be huge, you know? Um, even when I saw that, and I remember Nick Clark, he passed on it. He passed on, he passed on signing them. I think he probably regretted that to this day, but then again, if I give him a little bit of a nod, 
he was the guy who's responsible for finding pure, um, slightly more. Um, 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 he, his leaning was more towards R and B and soul. Anyway, this was a, a pure pop group, you know. Right. Um, so, 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 so I think that that, might, that may have led to why he thought maybe they were right for another label. They went they, that day. I think they went that day or the next day. They went to Virgin and Virgin signed them on the spot. And somewhere and Richard and somewhere Richard Branson is saying thank you, thank you for that yes. mistake. And then also too, that <laughs> yes. led, also that led a little man who wore certain shirts that became uh-huh. huge over here in America with American Idol Simon Cowell to create five. That's right. That's right. Well, well, the, the way, even going back to Richard Branson. Now, when I was touring with Janet Jackson, um, uh, we, 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 toured, we toured like, I don't know, we must have done 20, 30 venues around Europe. Like, you know, we had this young group that was blowing up um, almost overnight, seemingly overnight in the UK to playing to like 100,000 people in stadiums, walking around after Janet Jackson and blowing up the stage, you know? And we, we totally could cover a stage. We knew how, we, we were prepared for it. We lived it. We loved it, right? And in the audience, next to my mom, she'd be sitting in the, in the VIP section next to Richard Branson. She'd be like, how come he's coming to your concerts all the time? You know, people like Richard Branson would be there, you know, Janet, Janet Jackson's mom and dad, would, Janet, Janet Jackson's um, mother would come backstage to see us, the brothers would come and sit. We, we, a lot of people were around us who were quiet, who could see where we were going and wanted us to be something. But Richard Branson showed a particular interest in us. He was a huge fan of our song and he was looking for the next big act. He actually wanted to sign us. And I think he totally got that with Spice Girls, you know? He totally got, he totally got that with Spice Girls. Like we, we, um, he invited us to, he launched the, um, the Eurostar. When he did that Eurostar, he launched a train that was traveling from the UK through to Paris, Disney World. It, was, it would go under the, cha- under the English Channel, under the sea, take it directly into, into Disney World. And he took, he, you know, he, he'd, he'd call us, we'd go on the train with him and his family. We'd launch those kind of campaigns with him. He showed a really keen interest. So, you know, it, it, you know, it didn't surprise me that, you know, when they got signed to him, it didn't surprise me that he went that route. Um, um, he was obviously he's he's got a keen eye. He knows he knows he knows he's got a good eye for things, you know. Right. He definitely good has eye an eye for, for that because with five, they were huge in the UK, and then when the lights go out, the things you do get airplay over here in America. And I don't know if you know this little backstory about five, but they passed up on a particular ditty that went to another boy group and became a huge hit for them, but they passed on it. You want to know what the song in the group was? What was that? Bye, bye, bye. What was that? Bye, bye, bye. Okay. Okay. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't surprise me too tough, though. That doesn't surprise me too tough. You know the funny thing, though? I'm going to say this straight up. You know when we were sitting in limbo after Eminem, after we went, you know what? We're going we're gonna to take some time out to chill. I've done songs like Atomic For You and Freaky, and we passed up on songs like, you know, We Got It Going On, all those kind of things. We noticed after Eminem, there were a whole bunch of boisterous young boy bands, you know, doing the whole beat down scene that, that, that Roots, Roots take the mick out of in what we do, you know? They, they, the whole, they, 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 totally, they totally took our vibe, you know? All those bands that came after us, all the European UK groups, they went from being Take That Dancing in Leather and Lycra to being these R&B baggy pants, boy bands like Eminem, all of them overnight. I give a lot of kudos to them in terms of the energy. You have to do a lot of work to become successful at the back of it. But I also see that those groups wouldn't even exist if there wasn't a group like ourselves. They wouldn't have existed. Right. And what was your take once Grime and Two Steps started to explode and then the rise of Craig David? Yes. So, so um, around 99, I was doing a lot of writers off Eminem. Um, I got offered a solo deal to go and do my own album. 
And if you remember at the time, between the, the years of like 1998 to probably like about, you know, even the early 2000s, 2000, 2003, M8 was in a, uh, sorry, R&B was in a really strange place. You know, we went through a place of having Jodeci early 90s, Jodeci and Boys to Men, you know, Cooley High Harmony and all that stuff, early 90s. Mid-90s, you had people like M&A, then you had like artists like, you know, you had your Horace Browns and you had your Montel Jordans and you had, there was a lot of things happening. There were a lot of things happening. You know, you had, you know, you had the, um, the Jason's Lyric soundtrack, the You Will Know, the Tevin Campbells all blew up. Around 1998, 1999, everything became a little bit quiet. You know, Neo Soul started to really take off. You know, people like, um, obviously, I, I, I was, I'd be on tour listening in 1995 to people like D'Angelo, 94. I knew people who were developing them for years and those acts were brilliant and, and, and awesome. But around 1998, all you had around that time, 97, 98, Maxwell, um, Eric Benet, R&B started taking on a particular look and feel. Um, and um, and it, was, it was really cool, really nice sound, but it was really kind of slightly chill. It wasn't as boisterous. I think the only thing you really had around that time that was really out there was probably Drew Hill. Drew Hill came on the tail end of it all, and Jay, Drew Hill would duck on fire. They kind of put it all together in their heads, and they were out there. You know, you had the whole dragon thing. You had Cisco going nuts, right? That was what R&B was, but there wasn't much else that could happen. And at the time, I got offered the solo deal by Sony. They pulled me up, and they said, look, we're not going to continue with m and I got pulled up by um, Jed Doherty. He was, the, he was the, uh, the, the, the managing director of Sony. He said, look, um, I'm not going to continue with m and I'm going to, um, I want to do a cross collateralization deal with yourself. You've been the front guy of the group for years and you're the sound of the group. I could just put you out without spending all that other money, right? But you know that whole saying that, you know, not all good, not all, not all, not all, not all, um, not all. No, they glitters is gold. Right? That's right. Not all, not all money is good money. They weren't doing it for my own interests. You know, they were doing it to save money. And I just wasn't prepared to kind of like, um, I wasn't prepared to do something like that with the band. I, I, if you can offer me a solid deal, offer me a solid deal, right? But don't offer me a solid deal at the expense of the group. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, 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 that'd, that'd be shady because I know a lot of US yes. record labels, they have in contrast with groups where they have right of first refusal where if anybody in the group decides to go solo, they automatically uh-huh. have the right to sign you to the label for a deal. That's right, that's right, that's right. So for me, yeah, sign me, offer me a deal fair and square. But don't offer me a group and say you're going to end Emanates. Emanates its own animal, you know. Emanates its own entity, you know. And I'm not going to. All of us. I might have been the front person of Emanate, but we all worked hard and we all deserve a spot, you know. Uh, I'm kind of a bit idealistic like that, you know. I'm not going to go out and try to become like um, 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 a solo artist at the expense of everybody else, right? But um, so I, I I decided, you know what? I kind of don't know what, I, and I also didn't know what I wanted to be like. See, for me as a solo artist, I love performing with the guys in Eminem. It was always the dream. It was always the vision we had. As a solo artist, I could easily have gone off and done my albums, which I, you know, I would, I would be a fantastic solo artist. But in terms of the vision of what, and what was happening at the time, I didn't want to come out and be dancing around on stage in 1999 when there was all this other rich music that was out there. You know, at a time when you've got artists like D'Angelo and Maxwell. And now, you know, you've got a time when I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like early 20s now. And, I, and I'm a bit more mature as an artist. I'm creating some really amazing music with people like, you know, Joel Campbell and, and, and some really seasoned musicians. I didn't want to have to go out and continue singing pop songs by myself. You know, I felt that would be a really short lived strategy. I was, a, I was quite, a, I became quite a known writer, quite a respected writer in the UK as well. So I signed to a, 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 a label, um, EMI Chrysalis, and I began going and, and working um, with other artists and collaborating with other writers. And I wanted to kind of be a writer. And in my contract with, with, um, with Chrysalis was, were steps to, you know, 
were steps that would reward me once I recorded my solo album. So my publishing deal was to was with a view with a view to record it, releasing my own solo music. In that journey, I came across a demo of a young kid, and they said, you know, you might want to come and write for this guy, and his name was Craig David. And it was around 1990, 97, 98, I think, 97, And I heard this guy's stuff. And I just heard someone who was kind of ready. If you know what I mean? Like, you know, I kind of thought, and because I knew what we'd been through as Eminate, we had our sound and we'd compromised so much. I heard a guy that you didn't really want to mess with too much, you know? I heard someone that, you know, you could put this guy out tomorrow. And I kind of- He already had it. it. Yeah, he had it. He had it. I'd only be doing it to try and make money, you know? And, um, and yeah, and I kind of said, you know, this, 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 this guy's got a really cool sound. He had a really good, in terms of his licks, he was always very tight. He was very neat. He had his own little sound. He had that little two-step vibe happening. And so when I saw him, um, I think within months, I said to, I said to um, one of the guys in the studio with us, look, this is that cat that we, we were looking at. And he, you know, he, this guy had it, you know, he, he blew up and he did his thing. And I, I loved it. It was the music that we were listening to in the time in the UK. It was the whole vibe that we were into. I think Timberland obviously had his own little take on that kind of choppy, um, two-steppy thing, what he did with Aaliyah and everything off, you know, off the back of that, or maybe at the same time or before. And, and it, was, it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing. And it was a continuation of that whole journey. I really was quite proud when I saw him come out and do what he did. I really thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah, I, like, I liked the whole wave that came with that as well. Yeah, because I first heard of Craig David, uh, MTV here in the States, they did a segment called You Hear It First, breaking artists that you should know. And he was one of them. And yeah, the thing yeah. that they highlighted was Rewind that they did with Alpha Dodger, my favorite right. cut off of Born to Do It. So I was extra happy once Born to Do It really was well received here in America. They shot yeah, a US yeah. version of Fill Me In, Seven Days was a big hit. And he did uh -huh. a remix for that with yep. Most Deaf. And I uh -huh. think uh, Very smart. Nate Dog was on the which was smart because it helped him break into the US market. And that album really exploded. Now, right. I would be remiss if we didn't go back a little bit to talk about the forefathers of modern-day UK pop, Stock, uh -huh. Aiken, and Waterman. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 I remember those guys. I remember those guys back in the day. They were more so when I was, like, in at the beginning of, like, high school. I, I, I kind of know them as being very poppy. Um, I... I um, yeah, they're just, they're just really solid writers. They're just really good, solid songwriters of any genre of music. So obviously when I was growing up, they were part of the soundtrack, but they weren't necessarily, they weren't necessarily leaning towards all the time, leaning towards R&B. They did things like The Princess and Say I'm Your Number One, and they did things for Rick, Rick Astley and a few others. But they were quintessentially just a pop, really solid, really good songwriters with a yeah. really awesome pop sound and the machine behind them. So definitely, definitely, I... Yeah. I um, they definitely deserve deserve a mention and a nod. Um, yeah. I, I would I would go a little bit though. I will I will go a little bit more towards um, what you're saying about. Sorry, just a track for a little. You mentioned about um, Craig David. I would say to you that um, again. Um, I will say to you that about Eminate. The one thing about Eminate, uh, if again, what I said to you, you had groups like Five Star that were like you know brothers and sister, girl, girl, um, girl boy group, reminiscent of the Jacksons. You had a girl group called Eternal. But before M&A in the UK, there was nothing like us that was urban, that was wearing Timberland boots, that was out there with the boxer shorts, that was authentically about it, that had like the, even the, the look and feel of us. And it was at a time where you had just white groups performing to white audiences. You had groups like, like, um, like, like Take That, or you had like um, East, East London groups like East 17 that had a little bit of an edge to them, but they were, they were essentially dance groups, a bit like Pet Shop Boys. They were managed by the same guys who did all the pop white groups. 
there was no room for a black group like us. And I remember early on in the piece, I remember being asked on BBC, they said, why do you guys think you're going to be successful? And I said, I said at the time, I said, we're going to have to make room. We're going to have to, you know, in marketing terms, you know, sometimes, you know, you're serving a marketplace, right? Sometimes you meet a marketplace because there's a requirement there. But sometimes you have to give people something that they need to have and then they lap it up. You create something for people and they come to you, you know? So with Emanate, we were looking to do that. Right. From us onwards, from us onwards, there was a snowball effect of groups that started to become urban and start to be accepted in the mainstream. When people see people that look like us, they accept the next, next act and the next act and the next act and they get more leeway. When you tell me things about Craig David going to the States and doing certain remixes with certain people, those are things that are a possibility and that are really well accepted and they get the, they'll, get the, they'll get the dollars behind them. It'll be, it's, a, it's a brilliant idea because they can see the progression. You know, it makes sense. But before that, it made, it made absolutely no sense at all before we came. We were in an absolute wasteland when we were signed. We, when we were signed, it was an absolute wasteland. We literally existed in a market full of white boy bands and um, techno groups. That was it, you know? Right, and, and so, yeah, sorry. Yeah, because I was sorry. saying, you know, when you're the first, you mm. pretty much get the brunt of everything is those that come after you that get to do what it is that you wanted to do because like you stated it was out at a time where there wasn't an urban uk group out it was only take that bras e17 and there was no lane you had to create your own lane and those that came after you get to sit down at the table and eat the meal that you guys prepared that's right. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't want to see people that look like us. There was uh, look. There were magazines like Smash Hits that would put us on the front cover of the magazine. They wouldn't put us on the front cover. Even our executives in Sony, our Caucasian counterpart, our brothers and sisters who would fight for us, they'd go and say, "Look, MX got the number one, the number top ten single in the UK. They're the biggest group at the moment. Um, can they get on the front cover of the next next edition?" And and from high up within the magazine, they were told that black people don't sell magazines in the UK. You understand? So our job was to break down doors. Our job was purely breaking down doors. People had never seen someone like us before. And I'll give you an example of the impact that Emily had. And it's unfortunate because if, I had, if we had social media like we do today, and I was running around with a camera at the time, people's minds would have been blown. I remember in, being in Belgium, um, it would have been like April 1995. And um, we just performed at one of the biggest stadiums in, in Belgium. And we came out the door. And there were police guards, there were police, uh, there were police um, with barricades and police dogs holding people back and people were screaming at us. Remember, these kids only had any, any of us seen us on MTV, so we were their superstars, right? We came off, we were four black guys in 1995. And people were screaming at us of all backgrounds, white kids with blonde hair and blue eyes, right? Screaming at us. There was one black guy in the audience, one black guy, sorry, in, in, in the crowd outside at the, back of the, at the back of the stadium. And he fought his way through to the front and he said, I just want to say to you, that you make my life easier. You make my life better. People treat me really well because they see people like you on TV. He said, you make me proud. Okay. And I remember that to this day. You understand? So you understand that. that so when I, when, you know, so even what, so the significance of what we were doing was so huge, but it wasn't being captured or documented. Right. It's something not to take very lightly. You understand, for a young black group from the UK to be on the front cover of Write On magazine and no one even know about it was absolutely huge because it didn't happen right, right? For, 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 for us to be for us to be doing workshops with prince charles prince charles on the on the day of the brits awards in 95 um prince charles we were his, we, we were his favorite act at the time 
invited us to 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 the coast of England to work with a bunch of un, uh, of, of um, disadvantaged youth, and we sat there with Prince Charles, um, a, a, a renowned um, uh, a musician and um, and band leader called Jules Holland. He's really respected to this day. You'll, if you go online, you'll see Jules Holland work with people like um, Charlie Wilson, and from Charlie Wilson all, all the way through to Adele and a few other people. We, did, we, we sat down and did a workshop with him and how we would work, we used to piece together a cappella music and we sat and we brought a bunch of kids and we got them to do an a cappella with Jules Holland. Huge. Prince Charles was there and we got to meet him with no cameras or anything. And he was really pleased that we did that without anyone knowing about those things. And it was at a day when we got to go to the prestigious Brits Awards, which was the biggest event in the UK. And we denied those to go out and help people. And no one gave us any kudos for those things. What we were doing was the beginning of the Prince's Trust. There was also an event called, um, there's also an event called, and, I, and it's important I say these things because it also makes me a little bit sad when I hear us talk about a lot of acts that came after M&A because the one thing that pays, one thing that serves a lot of people that came after us, and you, you'll notice it a lot, um, a lot of, say for instance, I come out and I become the next Cisco. In every interview, I'll never talk about Cisco. You understand? You understand? Like, you know, you'll always think it was just me. Ariana Grande, it doesn't serve her to talk about Mariah Carey. Yeah? It has to be about, you know, artists, never, artists don't, artists who are very popular, who, who, who are very similar to acts that came before, don't talk about the acts before. It's like they never existed. Right. You definitely got to right? pay That's homage the, to those that came before they, you, like new yeah, kids, they don't pay the acknowledgement, the new edition. That's right. That's right. You'll know, I, 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 if I have to put it to you, um, my wife was in Australia. My wife works in media and in music. She was in Australia and I was in the UK. This is before we were even, I don't even think we were dating. And she was a music, she was a, she's an actress over in the UK. She's done a lot of US movies and stuff. And um, so she, she knows her way about, she knows a lot of big ways. She gets invited to a lot of exclusive places and events. And she was in, in Australia and she went to a, um, a launch. I think it was, um, um, I can't remember the name of the R&B artist, but there was an R&B artist who was, who was touring over here. And um, she was promoting over here. It was, it was um, I've, I've got to get her name. She thinks, who do you love? Um, she features Shanice Williams. Shanice Williams' husband dances in the video. Who do you love? Um, if you really don't want me, who do you love? I can't remember the name of the, name of the artist. She's like a young Whitney Houston. My wife was backstage. She was talking to one of the executives. And the executive was, she, she, she mentioned to the executive that she knew me from Emine. And he said to her, he said, oh, he goes, Emine. He said, yes. He said, do you know Backstreet Boys and Nick's in sync? They are, they've ripped them off completely. We've designed it so that they can be the next Emine. They can be the white version and reach a mass audience. The same story. Do you understand? Yeah. They were based on us. A lot of these guys, they were based by executives on M&A. But no one knows these stories, you know? So what happens is we saw people took, take our formula and get given completely different treatments. And right. if I have to be honest with you, that, that was very disheartening. When we were looking to go forward, that decision we made to just sit back, that informed that decision for us not to push on. Because we, we were creating the groundwork. I'm going to say about 3T as well. 3T were amazing, like for what they were doing and their legacies. It's brilliant. But before us, there was no direction for a group like that. There were no braids. There was no backpack or nothing. You watch our video, Baby It's You, with the hairstyles and the way we looked and the way we sounded, the way we looked. There was none of that. A lot of all the groups that came after Emanate, we were the litmus test. We were it. Everyone got to build on that. But right. the key is when you do it, don't say it was Emanate or people will still got buying, people will still buy a record. They won't talk about you anymore. So nobody mentions them. So we, we, you could say we were, we, we, we were pretty much screwed over by, <laughs> by fate, you know? I, right. I, I wouldn't say it's anyone's fault, but, but, but literally we were the ones that people thought, you know, we can take what they've got and no one will say anything. 
everyone's right. ride the wave with us. And that's, that's what's right. happened. And right. said before, Spice Girls, no joke, Spice Girls sat there and told us we're the next you. We are the next you. Because I'm just saying, before Spice Girls, girls used to sit there all demure, you know, and quiet. These girls were trying to be us. We, if you ever know Emanate, kids would, kids would tune into our TV shows because we would go on and we'd take over the set. You know, we were just ourselves. We'd go on set and we'd take over. We hosted Top of the Pops. We, 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 we you know, people, sometimes they used to dread because when we would improvise, we, 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 we were just like that. We'd bounce off the walls. We had all the energy for days. And we were smart. We didn't do it in a really wild way. We were really smart and quite driven. And the idea was to present ourselves like lads, you know? We grew yeah. up. We grew up playing football and eating fish and chips. So we resonated with a lot of people. We grew up with white kids, black kids. When people saw us on TV, they saw themselves in us. Yeah, you were, just be ourselves. You were the guys around the way. You could be at a park playing a football or as we say here in the States, a soccer game or like you said, a fish and chip stand. You guys were not That's cookie right. cutter and you guys paved the way for a lot of acts like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, like Damage, like all of the urban acts that came after you guys. That's and right. it is definitely, I feel... It's hard. It's hard to see somebody taking what you're doing and reaping the rewards, but they're not giving you the proper credit to say, hey, Eminate paved the way for us. Well, let me explain something to you even more so. Mobile Awards. Mobile Awards in 19... Mobile Awards started around 1996. Explain what Mobile is. So it's a music of Black Origin Awards in the UK. I suppose it's probably the equivalent to like a BET Awards or an Essence type of awards kind of of set up. It was to recognise music of Black Origin in the UK. Obviously, um, there's a huge um, 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 Afro-Caribbean and, and, and Black um, diaspora uh, in, the, in the UK. Huge Black community, huge Black influence in music in the UK. And you'll, you'll see it in everything from the music Sting plays and for the police, that whole reggae kind of influence, the things Jamaica was doing with soul, to the things that Simply Red were doing, you know, all the way through the two-step garage and the whole thing. Now, the awards ceremony started in 1996. Who was the biggest Black act in 1996? m Right? When we came out, we launched the first Mobile Awards. We went on there with As Yet, and we performed at the very first Mobile Awards. It was on the back of a black hair show. And we, we came down, we, we, we were in the middle of our tour, we stopped off, because we wanted to connect with our people. We stopped off and we performed there for nothing. And we went, as part of the awards, we went back on tour. We were doing our road shows and all that other stuff. We stopped and we wanted to help out that, 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 that award ceremony. That award ceremony has never, ever acknowledged women. And we believe a lot of it was to do with a lot of the politics was around it. The people that were looking out for us probably didn't get a lot with a lot of people who were organizing those events. The Music of Black Origin Awards has never, ever acknowledged Eminem. You understand? I went to the awards ceremony in 1998 with my manager. And I sat down there and I watched them give awards to Jamiroquai, to Simply Red, to everybody. And there wasn't a nod to Eminem, not even nominated. Now, most of the UK had never seen a black act before they saw Eminem. I'd never liked a black act before the sort of MA. You know, we were performing at Wembley Stadium. Just even the mere fact of just performing at Wembley Stadium, to get the success. For us to go and do that is significant to black music. You understand? For us to make the waves we made, it was significant, but we were never acknowledged. And so those things were kind of wearing us down as well at the same time. You understand? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and, I, and, and if I talk to you a little bit about Five, I remember sitting down with a writer called Brian Rawlings. He, he wrote for a group called Nightcrawlers. He wrote, um, Do You Believe in Love After Life is Shirt, years later. And I sat down with him while I was writing. I bumped into him on a, tri- a writing trip. I, I sat down in the studio. 
And he again told me, he said, yeah, he said, I see five on top and they're doing an Emanate impersonation. They're white kids acting like they're from the hood. The fingers pointing, you know, and, and kicking in the screen, that electronic music, that high. But he says, there was nothing like that before you lot. They, they're trying to be Emanate. They know where the market is. Anything that was chanty like that was Emanate, you know? All of it was like that. The only group I can say that wasn't directly Emanate that came afterwards was probably a group like Another Level. They kind of tried to do it in a really kind of more authentic way. And I say even Damage. Damage tried to do it in their own way. But, 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 but all these other pop racks you saw, they, without us, they would have been like other versions of Take That and Boy Zone. At the time, our peers, when we started, our peers were people like Take That and Boy Zone. When we were touring, the hugest groups at the time was, was um, Emanate, Take That, Boy Zone, and E17. We were one of four top groups, four boy bands. Understand, you know, sometimes there's an era of groups that are like the top ones, the ones that are that, that, that supersede everything else. It was Take That, Boyzone, Emanate, and E17. And those were the only four groups on the scene. The only four groups on the scene. And, um, and when we would tour, E17 would come out to see us. Take That would come out to see us. Even when I was touring on Janet, Robbie Williams and Take That came to see us backstage. They were touring Germany at the same time. We were all in, we were all amongst each other. But now the history books look like we weren't, we didn't even exist. Yeah, but that, yeah, but that just goes to show that those guys had to come pay their respect to say, hey, these brothers are bad. That's right. Well, even Ronan, Ronan Keating from Boyzone, Ronan Keating, he, 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 he hosts a show over here called, I think he's um, X Factor. I think what's X Factor? Is X Factor? I think it's X Factor he was hosting over here. And um, a few people in production, Said, they didn't show this on air, but during the scene, he had a group and he said, look, he said, let me tell you about one of the best groups I ever saw. There's a group called Emanate in the UK. They're one of the best live acts we ever saw. He goes, they used to close down every show and blow everybody away. Because we came with that stadium mentality, right? Um, and, um, and he was talking about us like that on set, probably up to about two, three years ago in Australia to people who didn't even know who we were. So we've become like a bit of a myth to a lot of people, but anyone who came to see us when we were young kids, we used to go on stage like we owned the place and we rehearsed it that way. I mean, you got Details, who was like, um, he was um, one of MC Hammer's dancers. He was, he was, a, he was a, um, an understudy for, for the New Power Generation for Prince, you know? You had G-Man, who was like, you know, G-Man performed like he was on stage. You see the guy on stage, you know, the way he ripped off his shirt. He owned the stage like Bobby Brown, my prerogative. We were all about it. We were completely all about it. We had no regard and no respect for what came before. We were looking to take over completely, right? And, and, and so acts that we were up against, the little boy bands were doing the little two-step shuffles and stuff like that. They'd never seen anything like that before. They didn't know where to stand if it wasn't in the choreography. We were running across the stage. G-Man would be climbing up the scaffolding, you know? We were surfing the crowds. We would run into the crowd and perform from the back of the stage. You know, it was like a huge hip-hop concert. You know, and for us, before MA, we were those kids that were selling the con concerts at like um, Onyx concerts and, 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 and stage dives, you know? We were those guys. That's what we would do by night. We'd finish recording and go to an Onyx concert in the middle of London and be slamming everybody. We were those kind of kids. And when you took that and you packaged it up and you made it into a boy band, you had something that was completely different, you know? Yep, you guys took the urban flavor and exploded it to the pop world and they didn't know what to do with you all. That's right, but, but young white kids who, and I, and I hate using the term white and black because it, it, it's, it's annoying, particularly now. And it, it actually can be, to a certain extent, slightly counterproductive. But young kids that were of different backgrounds who were watching us, young white kids, they were no longer now informed by people like Take That. They didn't have to dress up in lycrics and lycra and spandex and leather and, and dance on stage and try to appeal to like, you know, um, um, 
our, our slightly um, more LGBTQ, LGBTQ um, audiences or, 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 or young, young girls and grandmas. They can actually just go out and be as boisterous as they wanted to be, you know? And, and, and for, for those kids, they saw an outlet in us, you know? Those young white kids who like to spin on their head on a piece of vinyl, or who like to listen to LL Cool J, or they like listening to New Edition, when they saw Eminem, they saw themselves. And off the back of that, you saw groups like Fife come out of nowhere. These young rapping groups, they would never have been thrown before. You know, people used to shame white kids into, into not accepting black culture. Right. Yeah, it they, was, they, 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 yeah, it was almost like a dirty little secret where I got to have my Take That record up in the front and not have to have the M&A or the Jodeci record so that my mom right. and dad can see me looking at something on top of the pops or not a U.S. import of an urban music show. That's right. And, and as you know, as well, opposites attract as well. So like, you know, a young, a young, a young Caucasian girl who who, you know, she likes seeing the white boy bands, but like sometimes people like the opposites of what they look like. Or sometimes they have a friend that they grew up with that looks like you. And they don't understand why they're not seeing your representation. But they saw bands like ourselves, they saw a little bit of themselves. Or they saw a little bit of something they liked. You know, a lot of the kids I grew up with, when I was like 13, 14 years old, I was going to school with young um, white, and, white and black kids. And young white girls were, were, were going to see um, Bobby Brown the same way you see girls going to see Justin Bieber now. So you understand that, that, that an act like that was lacking in the UK until Eminem came along. We were that, you know, we, right. we were that. Yeah, because I then, know. And also, yeah, sorry. Yeah, because I was saying a lot of, you know, when a lot of the UK acts made it big in the US, it was almost like they were surprised at all the reception that they were getting over here because urban music, of course, over here is the bedrock of pretty much everything rock blues, all derivatives of R&B. So it was like, wow, you mean to tell me that there's a station that plays nothing but R&B and rap all day, all night, and I don't have to listen to it by a certain time before the FCC comes and shut it down? <laughs> exactly. Well, you understand this as well, even, even like for, for ourselves as well. As young Black people, I think you've got, there's a few different crossovers here. So we're talking about, even for young Black people like Emma, who we were, when I talk about our success, and I talk about people like our success, for me, and I'm just going to say it straight up, I think five success has a lot to do with privilege as well. These guys didn't have to be R&B or, or, or you could, I, I personally think you could get any five white guys, put them in a room, if they look half good looking, half decent good looking, teach them a dance routine, give them a boisterous track, they're going to blow up, right? It's very different with a black group, very different with a black group, because you've got everybody fighting you on all sides, yeah? You've got radio stations that won't play you, and you've got the urban stations that won't play you, you know? Literally, it shouldn't happen, right? That's, it's, it's literally the rule of it. It doesn't happen. So you have to do what Michael Jackson did. You have to be twice as good as the Osmonds to get the same, you know? So I don't look at a lot of that like, oh, wow, you know, I, I'm impressed by the success. I can see when people have worked really, really hard. Groups like that I see like Backstreet Boys are significant because I think they're actually really talented, you know? Groups like Five have their talents, but I know that that was also the brainchild of music executives who wanted, wanted to emulate what Eminem had. It's not the guys' fault. The guys in Five are probably quite talented. But I see it as being a brainchild of an executive or a honcho who thought, wait a second, we could do, we can create another Emanate, but one that actually, you know, meets the mainstream audience a little bit better. But for me, when I look at these groups, I don't really, I don't see them in the same space as Emanate. I don't see them at all in the same space as Eminem. Even something right. completely different, but I see, them as, I see them as having benefited a lot. I see today, you know, you'll see um, even today, we, we look at groups like, we look at people like, um, I said, Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande, when she had that first song out, I like the way. That sounded like something Mariah Carey would have dropped in the 90s, right? And if, if Mariah Carey hadn't dropped it in the 90s, I don't believe that you would have an Aria Grande. Like, you know? 
it's that kind of thing. It's kind of like, well, if, if um, you know, you see, you see people like Amy Winehouse, she's really talented for days. But her stuff to me was very reminiscent of what Lauren Hill was doing. You understand? It's very reminiscent of what Lauren Hill was doing. But, and this is significant. So we could say, oh, okay, Lauren Hill was very successful. But I think it was hugely significant that Lauren Hill, looking, looking the way she was, and looking at in context of history, and looking at what was, what was around before her, her success is very different to anyone else's success. You know? Right. It's just two different things, you know? It's significant for anyone to, I said before, not taking anything away from those other acts that came, that, that came subsequent to us and what they've done, black, white, brown, whatever, but it's a very different type of success that you enjoy, you know? Yeah. Very different type of success. Definitely that, when you definitely get the big machine backing you, you know, like your Ed Sheeran's, your Dale's, your Sam Smith's, you know, where they're yeah. transatlantic superstars. I mean, it was a big controversy here in America when Adele won Album of the Year for the Grammys over Beyonce's Lemonade. Well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say to you. And wh where are we going with this? And I'm going to say this straight up. We're not talking about, well, it might be. I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't read the minds of other people, right? But I think we're not talking about racism. I think we're talking about something else here. Like, I, for me, one of, the things I, one of the things I did when I moved to Australia was I went and studied marketing. I went and studied for years. It was something that made sense of a lot of things that we are happy to do ourselves. So quite often when I was in M&A, we were running the show. We were doing our branding. And I created the first m logo, you know? I was the one who came up with the idea for the, for the champion for the vocals. I was a natural for those kind of things. Those kind of things that you see you know, the, the people making merchandise. Those are things that I was doing, and I'm, I'm going to give comments right now. I based that idea on what Nikos on a Block were doing in terms of their merchandise. Nikos on a Block's merchandise, and I think, I think Nikos on a Block made more money from merchandising than they did from their music initiatives, you know? So my idea was, okay, wait a second, we're always wearing our pants sagging. Pants sagging. Why are we going to write Calvin Kwan? Why are we going to wear Calvin Kwan's boxer shorts? Let's create our own, you know? People are going to want to be like us, you know? And that was the whole idea. But anyway, marketing was always a thing in the back of my mind. So when I came to Australia, I went and studied marketing for many, many years and got involved in the music industry in different capacities. And the one thing that really resonate, resonated with me then and resonates with me now even more so was that people, they, let's, 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 let me just go off a little bit. Let me, just, let me just stretch it a little bit. Let's look at things like even um, phenomenons that have spawned since M&A and boy bands in the 90s. Things like mixed martial arts and UFC. You look at, you look at phenomenons like Conor McGregor, right? His whole appeal is he resonates with anyone that looks like him. Anyone that looks like him or hails from where he came from. And it's not racism. It's not about hatred for black people or anyone else. It's just that young white people can see themselves in him. You know, when you see somebody who's like you doing what you're doing, doing what you wish you could do, they become like a superhero and you back it. Now, when you see people like Adele and you see people like um, um, Beyonce, most of the Western world that we live in, I mean, literally, we live in a Western Caucasian environment. And you see every day, you, every video you see, every second video you see on Twitter of black people being marginalized. Or you, 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 it's, a stark, it's a stark realization that black people are a minority in the West. And we know the, we know the story. I'm not even going to go into it. But most people look like Adele. And they, that's all they want. They want people who look like themselves. And what's happening with music, particularly in the UK right now, is the face of things like R&B. Let me just, I'm going, to, I'm going to simplify it. I'm going to really simplify it and dumb it down. In the 90s and 80s, black people were known for being excellent singers, weren't we? We were known for like, you know, you'd have your, you'd have your like, um, I mean, I'd be, I'd be watching like um, uh, the Apollo. I'd be watching people like Anthony Bailey and, 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 and some of the featured artists like Glenn Jones and Tony Terry. Black people were known for being amazing singers. In today's society, black people are rappers. Black people talk over beats. And white people are singing R&B. 
Do you understand? The market has backed white people as singers, and the white people, the white market, and the market has accepted black people as being rappers. Trappy Solster, who grew half singing Murmur and Beat, right? All the things, all the great singers today, Adele, Ariana Grande, Jesse J, you know? Where are our, our new Faith Evans? Where are our new, um, where's our new um, Luther Vandross? You know, where's the support for those kind of things? And it, again, it, it's so easy to call it racism. It's not racism, it's just a fact that, uh, that, the fact that people resonate with people who look like themselves. That is it, that is it, period, you know? And, and if I reverse it and I wanna make it look like, okay, it's not about white people. We love seeing people like, um, we love seeing people like, um, um, uh, again, let me look at boxing or, 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 or martial arts. We love seeing people like John Jones and Anderson Silva as black people because we see ourselves in them. We love seeing Obama because we see ourselves in them. You know, not to the point that we, we're, we're going to, we're going to um, begrudge our, our, our white brothers and sisters, but we like seeing people who are like ourselves. And I think that dictates a lot of what we're seeing in the marketplace in terms of music, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and it's an unfortunate thing that we have to navigate. Yeah, I definitely agree that it is unfortunate that we still look at everything as black and white. And then before we continue with the podcast, I definitely want to say as a African-American male here in the U.S. to see the world stand with us after George Floyd yep. being killed, it just brings me to where it's I'm not invisible. The world says yeah. we stand with you, America, to see John Boyega and everybody over in England and worldwide right. stand with us and say Black Lives Matter. I just got to right. say, it. it is just, for me as an African-American male in the U.S., it's heartwarming to see. Can, can, I, can I say something to you as well? About, go ahead, you know, when we go ahead. A little, we, talk, we, we talked a little bit about the beginning of R&B and music and stuff like that. The reason why as Emanate, we didn't really see a distinction between what was happening in the States and what we were seeing in ourselves as young black men in the UK. If you understand the way, you know, the same journey that African-American people have been on, the same people of Caribbean descent have been on the same journey. We, we, we actually come, probably come from the same parts of Africa. We've been through the same system of slavery, right? And we ended up, we just ended up in the island, right? Our parents decided in the 1950s, instead of going to the US, we decided to go to the UK and, and Canada and places like that. But the same journey and the same experience, it's the, same, it's the experience is exactly the same. And the origins of the music is the same. You know, you look at people like Cool Herc. Cool Herc was a Jamaican guy in New York City at the beginning of um, rap music. And a lot of like what you see in terms of rapping over, rapping over beats and, and singing came from Jamaica, you know, came from, uh, came from raga and dancehall music. So what you're actually seeing in the UK and in, 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 in places in the UK, we see black groups spawn up. It's coming from exactly the same place it's coming from the UK in terms of R&B music, swing and stuff like that. That's why you see the same kind of talent coming from overseas. We're on the same journey with the same people, you know? Um, in terms of, um, in terms of, that's, that's why I say to you, like, sometimes there's, there's a bit of a disconnect. I remember talking to one of my, one of my buddies in the States, there was a group in the UK, they were called Big Bro or whatever, and they were rapping in American, and he was going, look, you guys are copying our culture. And I said, well, you know, you can't really say it like that, because at the end of the day, hip-hop culture came from a lot of Jamaican people, you know? But people from the same, you go to Jamaica, you'll see it, the same things there. You know, we were doing it from a from long time ago. It's the same people who are doing the same thing, same journey, same genetics, everything, right? Um, when you see things like what happens, I'm going to jump a little bit, when you see things like what's happened to George Floyd in America, um, that resonates in the UK because black people, white people grew up with friends at school. Well, it might be slightly different to what happens in America. A lot of white kids in the UK grew up with friends who look exactly like George Floyd, you know? That was someone's first boyfriend or someone's best friend or that was someone they played on the football team with or whatever. And they see it and it's like, nah, you know, this, this won't fly. 
it's also I found with a lot of people, and, and that obviously jumping coming to Australia as well, another clinic. But for a lot of people as well, these are people who would um, wince on social media about someone harming a dog. You know, to see that someone did that to a man, another man, I think it was very uh, grounding. You know, they can't, they couldn't escape from it, and that's when you have to confront your own humanity. You know, and I think for a lot of people everywhere, I think we just, I think it made people realize that we're all people. We're just people first. We are just people first. You know, and I think that's what, I, that's the, that's what's resonated about this whole thing with George Floyd. We talk about police reform. We talk about racism. Racism's there, but it's more about shared humanity. I think those moments like that make people see, wait a second, we're better than this. All of us are better than this, you know? And there's a, there's a common thread between all of us, you know? Right. We're that, definitely that's, that's all one in the same. And um, that's right. I want to mention, you know, you're in Australia. We got to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, with the Aborigines. <laughs> yes, yes. The Aboriginal situation is, is very similar. The original situation is very complex over here. Very, very complex over here. And, um, and it's a very similar thing. These, these guys, these guys are the, very, in, a, in a very dissimilar way to what, we, what we've been through in the West, in the States, and America, and, and, the, Car- and, and UK and, 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 and the Caribbean. Um, the Aborigines are the original people here. You know, they, they're, not, they're not the imports. They weren't brought here through slavery. They're not, the, they're not immigrants or anything. They're the people who originally owned the land. And through some, some unjust treatment that happened, you know, two, three hundred years ago, you know, they were pretty much like what, what Columbus did to the Indians in America. That's what happened here. And so it's extremely complex and extremely deep, you know? Mm, um, yeah. um, these, pe- these people are the real Australians. Um, the, the hard thing about it for me as a black man is that if a, a black man, in terms of our definition from people who came from, I don't know, use the word, people, people who came from, a, um, a, a people who hail from Africa, is that in Australia, they tend to look at anybody who's dark-skinned as being black, which betrays our own individual stories. You understand? Mm-hmm. A lot of Aborigines over here don't have any African DNA at all. Right? A lot of their DNA comes from places like India and, 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 um, and Southeast Asia, you know? And, um, and, and so their experience is, is, is the same. They, the industry treatment they've experienced is the same, but it's different. You know, there isn't, right. they, 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 do have a, they do have a slight legacy of slavery that did exist. And I think it would have been informed by what was happening to us in, in the West, us being exported from West Africa. Um, but it's slightly different and nuanced. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different thing altogether. And I've quite seen situations over in here where I, I, I suppose you could probably equate it to what's happening in the States when you see like, you know, people with a Pacific Islander background who seem to be black in, a, in, a, in appearance, but they're slightly different. It's that kind of thing, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's it's the same but different. And yeah. It's unjust. It's horrible, but it's different. And I, and I think that people now are beginning to pay a lot more respect to Aborigines over here because they they're starting to be well aware and more informed that they are the they they the original people of this land. So I think it's slowly happening for them. But in terms of black people from Africa, I I feel like we're kind of always seen as the outsider. Right. And I notice that here more than ever. It's a different type of racism, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a difficult one. Yeah, I can definitely agree because I'm originally from North Carolina in the U.S. and I moved uh-huh. out to New Mexico about six yeah. years ago where my wife is from. She's black and we're in a part of the state where it's predominantly Native American. We're close to the Navajo uh-huh. Nation Reservation. So okay. to see up close, you know, where running water is a luxury. You have generations of family yeah. members living in one house and you have to drive X amount of miles out just to go get yeah. running water. Ooh, deserts. Yeah. 
not good. And to see it up closer just made me realize like, man, you know, Mm-hmm. Black people and natives stories are very similar, and yeah. it you like you said yourself. I think everybody is waking up to the fact that hey, this has gone on enough for far too long. Yeah. And the next yeah. generation, the youth that's out now, because they're the social media generation where everything mm-hmm. is at the palm of their hands or at the click of a mouse, they're sick and tired of it, and they're not going to stand for it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, it, it's a funny thing. I think race is a very, very important and poignant thing. And, it, and the thing is, we've, it's been so hard for us to have that conversation without people getting defensive and feeling like we're accusing them of something, you know? Um, it's, it's a strange one. I would, I'd often say to my wife, like, people get offended because I've pointed out that they've offended me, you know? That used to happen a lot in Australia. Um, I'd come over here and someone would bring up the fact of my colour or whatever. And I'd say, hey, mate, look, you know, chill out a little bit. And that person would be offended because they feel like I'm calling them a racist. They feel like what they was. They feel like what they were saying to me was was nothing compared to being called a racist. The thing is, they raised the agenda, you know. And, and those kind of things happen a lot. And 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 um and it, that kind of thing happening kind of everywhere has made race a really difficult conversation. I see it in the states all the time. The whole thing about the 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 the, the locked in translation message of Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. You know, it's it's a very logical message when Black people say. Black Lives Matter, you know? Do we have to add two on the end of it, you know? Black Lives Matter too. We didn't have to do that. People understand the reason why that's around is because Black Lives Matter because all lives matter, you know what I mean? And, and it's, it's funny to me that people don't really understand that. And it's because there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a defense mechanism that people have, but they don't want to give up what they have, or they don't want to feel like, they don't want to feel like they're in the wrong. They get defensive about things that stop the conversation from happening in the first place. In context with, bringing it back to music, in context with music, what it does, is, is, is it stifles the fact that there were, there were certain things that aren't happening. I, I, I saw um, Jermaine Dupree mention the other day that they got rid of the term urban music in, um, in, um, in America. And I think it was in the word categories or whatever. Because it was classifying black music in a certain way. If you notice, there hasn't been, a, there wasn't an R&B award in America for many years at the, at the Grammys, right? And, um, and these are, this, 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 this conversation about color and race, it colors everything at a deep level. And because no one can speak about it, it can never, ever be addressed. You understand? It just continues and continues and continues. And I think that's, that, if I bring it back to this conversation, it's why I touched on it quite a bit in this conversation we're having. You know? um, 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 a lot of what you see, a lot of the legacy of what you see with Eminem, not what, a lot of what was happening around us, a lot of what you see happening in music today, there's an, uh, there's an unspoken kind of agreement or an unspoken kind of acceptance of the way things, of, of things being the way they are. And that's why we're seeing things go the way they're going, you know? And, 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 and that's why we see many of the acts we see there, much as we that we're seeing Adele winning awards at things over, as a Beyonce or, 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 um, or, um, or um, who was it winning the hip hop award? I think um, J. Cole was commenting about, um, about um, um, someone winning the hip hop award. I can't remember who it was. It was, um, wasn't, um, it wasn't um, Post Malone or someone was winning all the hip hop awards. Matthew These things are happening. Yeah, yeah, Macklemore, it was Macklemore, that's right, that's right. And it's almost like we're being gaslighted because no one raises it, right? And a lot of black people are scared to raise it because they're scared of losing their support base and their marketing dollars or whatever, I don't know what it is, by calling it out, but it is a real thing. And, it, and, 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 it, and I do agree that it is unjust to call the people doing it racist, because they're not racist. It's just, a, it's just it's a really lazy term to call people racist, but it's nuanced, it's like, you know, 
if I give you another analogy of being in Australia and how everything's slightly separated, one thing that's came, become really apparent to me, and I speak to a lot of people from Chinese communities here, a lot of people from Greek communities and South American communities. My wife herself, you see her family from Argentina, like Argentinian. And they only want to deal with people in their own community. You know, my wife grew up loving Janet Jackson, but she loves Jennifer Lopez more because Jennifer Lopez resonates with her. She can see herself in Jennifer Lopez, you know? Um, 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 the Asian community, uh, I, I, I do, I've got a, a, few, a few business partners and associates who are, who are from China and they like, you know, we only want to deal with Chinese people. We, we're, not, we're not prejudiced towards anyone else, but we are biased. You understand? It's not somebody hating on you, it's just the fact that certain privileges are, are rewarded in certain communities. In the West, where we inhabit, where we live, it's predominantly white and young white girls. They turn on TV and they want to see people look like themselves. So you understand that certain, you know, they, they, the, the audience will go with that, with that, with that message, you know, and, and, and that's, that's what makes it all pointed. But because it's an unspoken, no one is ever going to address it, you know. But the moment, that if, I, if I hark back a little bit, if I hark back a little bit, the, the key, it sounds really damning and negative what I'm saying. But if I hark back a little bit, the answer to it is something that's very, very different. And the answer is representation. Right? Mm -hmm. So for me, black artists, they need to present themselves, not as black artists, but just as human beings, as who they are, right? right. People like us, right? Or people like yourself. You, every day you do that. You, you wake up in the morning, you don't wake up thinking, I'm a black man, do you? You wake up in the morning and you want to drink water. You want to go brush your teeth and have breakfast and cut your door. You know? You're a human being. Right? You're only reminded that you're a black person when you watch the news or someone tells you you're black. But other than that, you're a human being. You're a force of nature, right? We're all forces of nature. Now, in the 80s, I'm jumping a little bit because that's the way I speak. I sound like the nutty professor of Back to the Future. <laughs> but in the 80s, artists like Michael Jackson, they weren't a thing. They were a force of nature. When white kids turned on the TV and they saw Michael Jackson, they saw themselves. Not just because he paled his skin. They saw him. They saw him when they were watching Thriller and Billie Jean. You know, because he presented himself as a force of nature. He represented his music. He was out there. He wasn't over familiar. There was mystique there. But this guy was so amazing. It spoke to him on so many different levels. I could say to you that maybe someone like Obama does that as well. He connects with people on so many different levels that people love him to this day. You know, where people might have not thought he was the most fantastic president, people think he's an amazing guy. You know, they see themselves in there. Artists like um, Dinah Ross or people like um, 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 Sammy Davis Jr., you know, they were amazing forces of nature. And they, they people came out of the civil, rights, the civil rights movement and they saw the significance of being the way they were and they saw the opportunity that was ahead of them. So they just went out there and they ran with it and they became who they were, you know? Mm -hmm. Today in music, I don't see that anymore. I don't see people trying to be great anymore. I see people trying to be parochial. I see people coming out and having rap groups. I see black people running around calling each other, and it's controversial, it's calling themselves things like the N-word, right? I'm gonna say the N-word because I, I, don't, I, don't look at, I don't look at my black father and call him and think he could be that, you know? I don't look at Barack Obama and think he could be that. I don't look at you and think I could be, you could be that. For me, me calling you that is like a white person calling you that. It's in my head, you know? I see myself as a proud Jamaican lion, right? That's the way I see it, right? And there's a proud heritage that went through it. But today, I don't call black people, it's like calling you a lowlife or a loser, right? Unfortunately, this is the thing. What people in America don't understand is when you look at the rest of the world, people in China and, and, uh, and England and Europe and Germany, we didn't, we didn't grow up hearing the N-word. We've heard it all through rap music. It's been promoted to us, like McDonald's. 
There are people I grew up with that never heard the word, heard the N-word in their life, but they hear it now on radio. And so they know to, they know to point that at me and you, Tom. So right. our culture has been proliferating things negative. So we've been beating our heads over this. We've been beating our heads over, our, we're beating ourselves over the, our heads with the stick that oppressors gave to us for years in media. And it's being, it's being backed by multinational organizations that consist of people who have money. And these people don't look like us. These people think, hey, it's what people want. We'll, we'll go we'll back there. We'll put that record on radio. We'll slightly meet that. Words like Igwat is being proliferated throughout media. It's hate speech about ourselves, to ourselves, and to white people who don't know anything about it. We're doing these things that are really negative and damning to our culture. Michael Jackson never used those words. You know? Prince never used those words about himself, public in music. So what I'm trying to say to you is representation is the answer to it all. You know? Right. We, we've got to go out there and do what we are. Right. You know? And this was why... Yeah, and this was why Motown was so successful in the 60s because they, Barry Gordy knew that, hey, there's not going to be anybody that looks like you performing in these places, going on these shows. So you're going to have to be more than because nobody has seen anybody like you be the best self that you can be to where when somebody looks at you, they don't see you as, oh, you're black first. They just look at That's you. Fine as a person also too for me as an american it's interesting to hear the perspectives of people from other countries saying how they view black americans through the lens from their own country because if you go to certain countries they look at blackface as a sign of endearment to black folks where for us if somebody were to come to me in blackface I would be like how Mel B was when she went to, I think, Denmark, and they had this tradition that they just recently stopped right. called Black Pete. And, they, yeah. and she was saying, no, this is racist. This is offensive to me as a yeah. Black woman. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely, yes. Definitely, definitely. Yes, exactly, exactly. But look, it, 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 it's, these things, as I said before, they, 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 they're, a, they're an invisible hand that's behind everything we see. And, and when I talk about it in relation to music, I'm not saying, oh, you know, it's, it's really bad for us as a fact that we can never get on and whatever. I mean, like, where are our Whitney Houston and where are our Michael Jackson and where are our Luther Vandrosses? You know, with, with the continuation of Kevin Campbell's career, that kid, he could have been, a, he could have been a great. Where are our artists that are like that, representing themselves as artists and putting themselves out there? You know, it doesn't have to be clean living or any of that nonsense that, that we have to do to kind of like switch up code and make people look like we, we, we were integrated. Forget that. I'm talking about where are, where, where are we showing our greatness? Instead, I turn on the TV and I'm seeing, I'll, I'll listen to an R&B track that I really enjoy. But then the second line, someone's saying the, the N-word. You understand? And it's like, wait a second, no. You understand what I'm talking about? Um, let's just talk about you know, the gay community, for instance. Right? And, I, and I mean this really respectfully. Um, the gay community, they, they, don't, they don't speak of themselves like that publicly. They don't, they don't, they don't make songs and they don't use like the, the the profanity that you know remember in the 90s we used to hear lots of profanity in hip-hop records about gay people using the f-word and that like to describe gay people gay people don't use that terminology to describe themselves publicly and in media they don't because you're keeping it alive by spending by, by taking the spelling of one of the letters it's still the word because it still derives from the same place and it's still linked to the same thing it's still intertextual do you know what i mean and and um for some reason, there's this, this whole thing where we're kind of backing ourselves on it. I mean, hey, we're going to use it, and it means that, it, it, it means that you know, we're, we're owning the word. And, you know what? Don't use the word. And let the people 
Let the people who want to use the word expose themselves so you know what you're dealing with. You know? Let the people who want to use that word expose themselves so you know what you're dealing with. And you let them know that word's off limits. Yeah, yeah? I, I definitely agree with that. We're kings and queens, you know? All the way through. And, mm -hmm. and, and I mean that in the way that we're all God's creation. And I, and I have the same respect for black people I have for white people too. We're all God's creation. To be honest with you, I, I am at a point where I, I don't, I, you know, I'm not going to say I don't see colour, but I see people as just people. We're human beings. You know, we've all got this opportunity online. We've all got this opportunity. We don't know what we were before, where we go, or what happens afterwards. You know, I, I grew up in a strict Jehovah's Witness background, right? So I'm strictly religious. So my, my, well, I'm, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness anymore, but I, I do have those Christian, that Christian morality. So I, I have a lot of respect for those teachings. But for me, I'm open to a lot of other things, and I don't know where we go or where we were before. But, you know, in some faith, they believe that, you know, we were something else before we came here, and we might go on to be something else later on. I don't believe the colour defines us. We're forces of nature. We have one shot, one shot on this planet to learn or do whatever we need to do, and then we're on to the next. It might just be an experience. We might die, and there's nothing after. We might go on to someplace else. But what we are, we have, we've got this huge opportunity to enjoy and laugh up this experience that we're having, right? Whatever it is, we just got in. For me and you, we just got into a particular um, dodgem car that happens to be black or blue or red or whatever. But we're still the same people within it. We're wearing this suit, and we're having this 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 experience in life, you know. Right. Um, so I, 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 I look at I look at race in, in that way, but I'm not I'm 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 also wise to understand that some people only see things heuristically, they see things on face value. And uh, someone who's Italian will want to deal with Italian people in a particular area. They'll be, they'll they'll lean more towards listening to uh, an Italian tenor as opposed to listening to a an Irish tenor. Do you know what I mean? It, when it comes to opera or but when it comes to pop music and black music, historically we've always seen the whitewashing of our music. We've always seen the Elvises pop up after you have your, you know, your your your, your um your Little Richards and your and your and your um you know uh, you, there's a, there's a bevy of other artists. But you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's a historic thing. It'd be, it'd be it'd be silly to ignore history and, and think that that doesn't happen. And that's yeah. what that's. The, if I have to explain it, for Emanate, we're all well aware that that's been our legacy for us. The music industry hums along in the UK, and they don't speak about us. You know. And it's almost convenient. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And also, I want to bring up uh, George Michael. He, he had did a documentary before he passed mm -hmm. and that aired on Showtime here in the States. And yeah. it was saying how once they blew up, it got airplay not only on pop radio here in America, but on R&B radio. He was heavily in rotation on Video Soul, BET. Mm -hmm. And he won two American Music Awards for Best R&B Album and best male R&B artists. And there was a big backlash over here in America because some people felt like, hey, we love George Michael. We love his stuff with Wham. But when he's winning our quote unquote categories, then that's a problem. That's right. That's right. That's right. You, you know, you know, that's bang on the money. I, 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 I'm going to try and bring it back in context of what we were talking about with, um, with, the Black, with the Black Lives Matter and whatever and the police reform and stuff. And in mind what you were just saying, and it's important to note that there is a, um, um, I won't say a race, there's an identity element. I was reading about a policeman in the States just yesterday. I was trying, to, I, was trying I think I was talking to my young daughter about it. She's obviously mixed heritage. She's, she's 16 years old and she's understanding things a little bit more about what's going on in the world. As I said before, I'm just raising people here, you know, but my daughter starts to ask questions. I'm showing her things. And there was a policeman, he was explaining um, police brutality in America. And it was a black policeman. And he was saying that, you know, from his experience, he said, you know, probably like 5% of police 
are racist. They're out and out racist bigots. Not all police are racist. Probably like five percent, a small element, are absolutely out and out racist. They hate the ground we walk on, right? That probably happens everywhere in society, you know, everything. He said, then there's like probably like about a um a twenty-five percent that are like um really good cops, really good cops. You know, they wanna they wanna join the police because they wanna make a difference. They wanna you know help the brownies get cats out of trees and walk off the street and whatnot. They want to serve the community and look after people. 25% are really good Serpico type cops, right? Then he said that there's a 70% of police that are just inert. They're just like, you know, they're cops. It's your job. You go there and you're, you're your cop. And depending on what type of leadership you have, you, you're that day you'll either make decisions to carry out quite, you know, to conduct police brutality or stop it. You know, depending on on, on what your leadership is. If you, if you have a have a have a um a chief who's a racist, a bigot, that'll be the culture of your of your of your of your of your uh, your particular police force, right? And if you have a if you have a, a a chief who tends to be about you know bettering the world and being good and being and, and, and about equity and equality, your force will then lean towards that way in the way that they can come day to day. There'll be more community based and more caring. What he was saying is that seventy percent of people that are inert, that is how I view the people who buy music, right? They are not necessarily racist, and it's a horrible accusation to just dumb someone down and call them racist or homophobic or whatever you want to call them, label people in a certain way without really knowing where things are coming from. It's really frustrating for the person who you're saying it to. But depending on which way things are kind of moving, they tend to be informed by it. You know what I mean? So when you see a George Michael come out, someone will make a decision to buy George Michael over going and seeing Trent Darby or they'll buy it over their Michael Jackson record, not because they're racist, because they have that particular leaning. The way it's, it's fed to them through the media, or or even having access to it, will lean to why they particularly, why they or they choose to 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 consume that type of media, you know, and and that's what's happening with music in general. The way that it's marketed, it's marketed, and le it leans towards that kind of mass mainstream, Caucasian record buying, middle class audience. It's just it's just sold to them that way. And if you can sell to that audience, you've gone clear, you know. The record industry tends to be led by people who look like you walk into a record company, most people don't look like you and I in a record label. It's probably a little division on this is an independent or a different label. Most people don't look like us in a lot of these mainstream record labels. And 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 they they're the ones who are setting the tone for what's happening, you know? And when that stuff's being put out in the marketplace, the consumers are lapping it up in that way. It works in exactly the same way. And 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 and, and yeah, and, and so that's the machine that I suppose young black artists who want to be great have to kind of navigate. And the way you navigate it is by presenting yourself as a human being. You know, just be great at what you do. You know, be your Stevie Wonder, be your George Michael, be incredible about at what you do. You know, be a brandy, be be you know, be Coco from SWV, be amazing, yeah, be Beyonce, and and that that's 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 the difference. And that's what Eminate was always trying to do. We were just trying to be great at time. We couldn't sit there and call everyone racist and that everything was unjust. The world is the world was the way it was. You know. Well, we could have control ourselves and what we did we just worked extra hard when we didn't make the same mistakes a lot of other people will have and we weren't trying to be the local urban guy in the community and trying to be more r&d or being more rugged or grimy than anyone else we didn't care about that stuff we were i wanted i wanted at 16 years old i wanted a kid in japan to have my record that's all i wanted i didn't even know i didn't even know what, what i didn't even know what japan looked like the day-to-day -day in japan looked like when i was 16 years old my whole drive to go and create a group like Emily and be a huge star was I thought I, I had a, I had kind of like a near kind of um, 
was this a near-death incident? But I had a, a confrontation with my mortality when I was about 16 years old. Now I was very, very sick. Very, very sick. My parents were in Florida. I was 16 years old. Hadn't left school. I was, you know, uh, I, was, I was at home. I was bedridden for quite a long time. And my brother at the time had been recording an album in the States. And it was amazing music he was, he was creating with a guy called um, Jay Logan in America. And um, I was, I, he, it, was, it, was my, it was my comfort. I was listening to that music constantly. And my brother always respected me. He would always call me and say, you know, hey, can you A&R this? Can you choose this? Can you choose what songs to do the single? Can you, what do you think of this? Or he was, he was like, he knew, he knew me as a musician myself. 16 years old. And I remember thinking, gosh, you know, I remember my dad coming and visiting me in hospital. I got sent to a hospital later on. But that came and visited me. And he said to me, he said, um, my dad was in tears. He was really worried about me. He thought I might, you know, it could be something quite serious. They were testing for all kinds of terminal illnesses. Fortunately, it wasn't nothing. It was a scare. But I remember thinking that night, I was, I was in the hospital ward, that, you know, you know what, I'm this young musician and I'm really talented. And I'm not talented in the way where I'm like to sit down the street. I'm talented in the way that I could be superstar. It could be huge. It could be significant. And if I died right now, no one would know who I was. Blame me because I played in a couple of soccer teams at school, you know, and spun on my head a, a, a few times during the breakdown. You know? But if I, if I get another shot, I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to do something huge. And at the end of it, if a kid as far as Japan has my record in their collection, my CD in their collection, that'll be a triumph for me. It means that I've lived. It means I was here, you know? It means that I did something. I was here. And what my life wasn't insignificant. And what was quite funny and what was quite poignant was I, I, I came across a, a fan recently from Japan and they had our first single, um, I was doing it for you, in Japan, the Japanese release. And um, they, were, they posted it on, on Twitter or whatever. And I thought, wow, that was all I ever kind of wanted. And, and for me, to be able to do that, you have to go out and just be transcend. You have to just be something bigger than the guy down the street. You have to just be who you were, you know? And for me, when I was performing, I was Ralph Trezvan, I was, I was Tevin Campbell, I was Michael Jackson, I was the guy from Shalimar, I was all the things, all my whole journey, you know? I was, I was um, Boogaloo Shrimp from Breakdance, I was all these people, everyone that ever, I ever, I ever, I, I was Bob Marley, I was everyone I ever emulated. I was Frank Sinatra, I was, I was all the people of the osmosis, I was the, I was the, I was the result of all that, all of that osmosis, and I wanted to do something great. And that's what I don't see much happening anymore, you know? And, and, and those things are the representation. Those, when people see that manifested, it becomes a manifestation. When people see an actor like Denzel Washington, they don't see a black guy, they see a great actor, you know? And I wanted to be that, and I think that's what we need to do. I, I was, Talking to, um, my, 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 my wife was talking about, um, my wife was a huge Michael Jackson fan in the 80s. And we were talking about young acts who are around now who, are, who kind of are emulating it, or people talk about it in the same talk as Michael Jackson. It's like Chris Brown and Usher and stuff like that. And, and um, when I look at people like Chris Brown, um, Chris Brown can dance all day long. He's a fantastic dancer, you know? He's got a nice voice as well. He's got a really good voice. He can perform, he can perform all day long. He's like, um, he's like the, the, the Duracell bunny, you know? <laughs> he's got it, he's got it for days. He's got like empty hammer kind of thing. But there's a, there's, 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 there's the, the, it's a game of inches, right? It's a game of inches. And I think when you look at someone like Chris Brown, he resonates with that kind of, um, we, we've, got this, we've got a culture now that's very um, hip hop orientated. And we, we want something a little, a little bit edgy, a little bit cool, a little bit igger igger, whatever you want to call it. And, He's there, he's got it. But we don't have that young kid that you saw in the Say 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 video with Paul McCartney. We don't have that today. 
You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. They don't have that magic. They don't have that magic anymore. We've got the guys who can dance really hard and sing and talk about sleeping with every girl from left hand and center and taxis up to the hill. And that's just a particular market. We don't have anyone filling that void. And the people who have tried to do it over the years, if you look really, really hard, it's probably closely close, it's probably been more likely to be people like um like Lady Gaga or Justin Timberlake when he first came out. They tend to be the people that closely tried to emulate it, even like harking back to the days of like when you see certain things like the spread of stairs stuff, the, the dance moves and the, and the classiness and looking back on history. Usher does it a little bit. Usher, Usher has a little bit of that himself as well. Usher has that little bit of sophistication, right? But, um, but um, and, and that's when you touch everybody across cultures, you know? You, right. you, you tend to, it's intertextual. You, know, you look at Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga is like Pat Benadar and Madonna and all these other things mixed into one. You know, it's like Bette Midler. It's like, it's got it all happening. When you watch it, you're getting this huge experience that isn't just this one girl singing and dancing on the stage. When you saw Usher, you'd see a little bit of Michael Jackson. You'd see a little bit of like, um, of like, um, um, you see a little bit of Michael Jackson, you see a little bit of James Brown, you see a little bit of something else, you see a little bit of Janet, you see a little bit of all the stuff that we ever grew up listening to. You'd even see a little bit of the best stuff of the New Jackson era. You saw Usher, he just had it, right? When he was young, he had it, he crystallized it, and he really, really had it. Put it and he saw a little bit of Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown was like a god when we were growing up in the 80s. Usher had a little bit of Bobby Brown in here, something that's kind of missed. And Bobby Brown would cast me back to artists that were from before as well. You see all of that. Artists today don't really do that, you know? The artists today are trying to be Usher or they're trying to be Chris Brown, but they're not going back enough. They're not looking at, they're not looking at what, um, they're not looking back at what, what Sammy Davis Jr. was doing. They're not looking back at what, you know what I mean? They're not, they're not looking at people like Elvis or looking at people like, like James Brown. They're not looking that far. They're looking at what's happening now. They're trying to be the next August, August, August Alcima, you know? And mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's cool, it's cool. It serves a particular marketplace, but you're not going to have Superstars, you're not going to have it anymore. And the ones who are doing it really well are the white kids. The white kids, because they sit further away, they tend to have a, a broader base of resources and, and, and reference. You know, they're not caught in that cookie kind of way of thinking. Right. I it's, definitely it's, it's agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, each generation has their own. And just go back and do a little research now with MA. I know details now is into acting. He's been in a couple of films over here in America, Batman's Begins, Star Wars. So what is G-Man and Cool T up to nowadays? So G-Man, G-Man's in and around the industry. G-Man, G-Man is um G-Man is um he I think he works a little bit more as a as a kind of a, in production and putting bands together. He's he spent a lot of time in the UK, and sorry, the US, working with a lot of bands in New York, um, young up-and-coming groups, doing the whole kind of like um, A&R thing and working with producers. I know he still works in and around, he still sings in church. He's like a family man right now, but you know, he's poised and ready to go. He's like, hey, when you want to do this m thing, I'm ready. You know, when you want to come back and we do it, well, you know, I'm ready, let's go. So he's all about it. Um, T, T, T's um, still doing the same thing. T's, T, when I met T, he was always like doing his own solo thing and, and singing back and vocals and, and, and doing session singing. And he, you know, he, he, he loves what he does. So he's still out there doing his thing and making moves and, and, and he's not wasting his, his, his voice or his time. He's out there moving and shaking. Yeah, Details is, um, is working with Disney. And you know, Details was always, when we went Details, Details was always looking to be an actor or a performer of some type. So it doesn't really, it's not really, really lost on me that he's doing those kind of things. And you know, he's keeping active and busy. Again, he's poised to emanate again. You know, he's 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 ready to go. Um, yeah, they're all they're all, they're all all ready to go. Me, I'm I'm out here. I'm um funny thing with with quarantine is I've um I've been focused refocused on recording my own material again. 
probably the MLA album that I've kind of like been putting off forever and ever and ever. I've been recording solo music for the last probably 20 years and I've never seen the light of day. It's been a labor of love um, on my own terms. And I've been producing for other artists, beat making, um, you know, that's how I get by here. But uh, quarantine made me sit down and knuckle down and work on my own project. Right. Um, as, as I said before, with, um, with the kind of music that's missing, I'm looking to put some stuff out, roll some music out over the next few years and just continue a bit of a career on my own. I'm, I, I kind of find myself sitting waiting for a day when we could emanate again. Quarantine being locked down forced me to not, well, forced me to not have that option firstly to tour with emanate or consider any tour and actually look inwards and become really, really creative. So I'm, I'm going back and I'm working on new material a, a, again. And um, yeah, that's actually the line of day. The kind of stuff I'm working on is, is it's very different, slightly different to things that I'm seeing now. It's the kind of music that I want to buy. Or right. I'm, I'm putting out the music that I want, I want to buy. I'm not hearing it anymore. Um, I recently um, was talking to my wife about somebody who was a bit of a mentor, someone I kind of looked up to, who recently passed away in the States. It was, um, you probably have spoken to this person before or know this person, but it's a guy called Daryl Diso, Diso um, um, from uh, 911. Basic Black. Daryl Diso Adams. Basic Black. You're yeah, leaving Basic Black. He was one of the guys that made me really want to sing when I was coming, right? This guy, yeah, you know, I'd have to tell you who basic black is. But he made me really want to sing. He, he was like Aaron Hall, but he had a different kind of take on him, you know? It was like, it's like they dragged him straight out of church and put him in the studio, you know? And, um, and I was speaking to this guy, speaking to him about, about three, four years ago. We talked about three, four years ago about um, what he was up to and um, doing an electronic project, a little bit like Silo Green and, and, and Danger Mouse and stuff like that. And I was really excited because you know, I love his voice. I love hearing this guy sing. I think he obviously after Basic Black, he joined 911. And um, I think he did some stuff at ARB, a Gene Griffin group back in the day. And he joined 911 and did that song Cuties. It was a precursor to, to Blackstreet. Amazing singer with Rob, with a singer called Rob Stevenson. And um, I mean, the guy, I, I don't go through his stuff. He's, he's an amazing vocalist. Anyway, I, I learned just this week that he passed away in, in February. And yeah. there was no fanfare. There was no fanfare. And that might have been some people in the States I knew about, but people who were huge, this guy was like a superstar in the UK. People that know that. People who really followed me that swing and loved me that swing. He was like, for us, he would be like a KC or a Jojo or a, you know? And um, just knowing that he passed away and there was no noise and he didn't release that solo stuff he should have, he should have released. Well, he may, he may have recorded it, no one knew about it. I think it's just a bit of a tragedy. And I think anyone who has, anything creative to offer. I think it's kind of like a little bit of a prompt to, to get out and do something. So for me, it's a kick up the butt really just to you know, start putting new music out, you know? Um, for yeah. me, um, the last 20 years has been a journey. Like in terms of m from m till now, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a keen singer. I'm a keen student of singing, singer-singer, you know? Um, so I've always been developing since m until now, my whole journey, production, right. writing. And there's a particular sound that I think is missing. I think um, I really liked what Usher did recently with LMA. Um, don't waste, don't waste my time. Don't waste my time. And um, I really like that sound where people incorporate a lot of stuff that happened in the 80s, the stuff that's happening now. There's a few artists that are doing it really, really well. I think LMA booed up did it really, really well. And I'm looking to kind of go back and create that kind of Jam and Lewis sound, but for now, you know. Kind yeah. of the album that Ralph Chesnut, the album that Ralph Chesnut should have done or should be doing. 
And for me, it's ignoring everything else that's going on, all the chapter stuff. I could produce that. I produce that kind of stuff for my kid all the time. I'm an avid producer. I sit there with my MPC and knock out beats all the time and sell them, you know? I could do that all day long. But there's yeah. like a magic and a beauty to something that's great. So I'm looking to create that album that maybe KD should have done, you know, and put it out. And it's somewhere between probably what someone like Neo's doing and something like what LMA's doing and something that's going to be timeless, you know? So that when I'm gone, people will say, oh, yes, we wouldn't do something. Right. Right. If you definitely get, yeah, if you definitely get the stuff, you know, get it out yeah. so that people can hear it. And then um, there is a website that I was a part of in the early 2000s called New Jack Swing Forever. We have a Facebook wow. group and there's a lot of people in that group that's from the UK. And they put yeah. me on to a lot of UK acts and I was like, oh, yeah. this is who that is. That's who that is. Yeah. Why did they didn't blow in yeah. America? But it just shows how music is universal. And, you know, you guys as m have unfinished business your story still has yet to be told and i hope with my platform that it's done you guys justice to get your story your truth out there yeah definitely definitely Definitely. i appreciate that as well that'd be fantastic i mean it needs to happen um we've literally been so myself personally um i i joke i jokingly say that i'm in exile in australia and the reason why i went to australia was was at the time when i was in emanate i couldn't walk down the street right I was recognized everywhere I went. And um, I wanted to go and experience life. I wanted to do normal stuff, you know? I, I, um, and Australia was my far fun place I could go to, you know? And, and try to have a normal life, go and study and, and try and live. And I got involved in music every I, I found a few back to, to labels over here and work with production companies and whatnot. But it hasn't been a big focus of mine and I haven't had to do it for money. I've done it on my own terms. But the idea was to be exiled. But in, in doing that, in doing that, um, I haven't had the chance to return and tell our story in the way that needs to be told. You know, the, the band Emanate, they, they, you know, they often speak, I mean, you know, he will do an interview in context of his own solo project. G's, G's a little bit quiet at the moment, but he did a fantastic interview with the BBC about, you know, five, six years ago, which pretty much, you know, should lighten on a lot of what was happening. Details, you know, he's focused on his, 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 his own career at the moment. He's not going to focus on Eminent until something's actually really, really happening. So for, and, 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 and for somebody who was constantly in the studio throughout the whole process of recording Eminent's album and was a person who masterminded a lot of it and put it together and knew what was going on and also the person stayed in touch with a lot of the executives way after the lawyers and, 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 and the managers who continued working with me years after, year after. There's so many angles on the story and there's so much information I can share. And, 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 and so one day, you know, we'll get back and there'll be a book or there'll be a documentary um, there's been a lot of interest in filmmakers to do something about just telling the story about what went on, and it's huge. I mean, it it it, and it, it almost like um it almost um um it's almost like a Forrest Gump type story because he understand at the time there was no social media, but a lot of the stuff that we were involved in, so you think the names from Backstreet Boys to Spice Girls to Celine Dion to Michael Jackson to Janet Jackson, I mean these people were superstars, and we were in amongst all of that. You know, we're kind of like the biggest band that never was. You know. In the mm. to come out of the UK, and no one really, really, really talks about it. And because of what we were, like in terms of our identity, it's kind of um, it's easy to dismiss. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't really often speak to us, speak of us in the same light that they would talk about E17 and 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 take that and boyzone to that because it's easy to dismiss. You know, in everyday life, people kind of can can move on. You know, and mm. and so it's important that you know people like you are doing what you're doing and, and talking about these things. You know, and um and um. And I think a lot of a lot of fans who are 
a lot of fans, there are a lot there are millions of fans around the world who've just been distracted with their lives, they're busy with their lives, they're older people working, you know, they're not sitting there on social media, they probably don't even use certain platforms because of their age group and demographic those platforms those platforms resonate with. So those people are, are, are really oblivious to to what's happening with them and it's even in, it's even inconsequential to them because they're busy with their lives. So 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 um it's a matter of if we if this kind of content's important because when they hear it they'll they'll be very interested in these stories, you know? They'll be very right. interested in sort of not they'll connect on that level. Right, definitely. That's, that's that. where that's, yeah. So so um oh, it's, it's 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 fantastic. It's really good what you're doing. Brilliant. Yeah, I appreciate that wholeheartedly. Do you have any shout outs you want to give before we conclude this interview? Look, I just want to give a shout out to D-Man, Detail, Coolty, um, um, and, and that's mainly it for now. Um, but we'll have some news for you guys. Once, it's all, once we got on top of this whole COVID thing, and then when they start scoring again, there'll, there'll be a next chapter, chapter to it, all of this. And there'll also be some new music coming out shortly. You know, there'll be some new music coming out. I'm really mind-blowing. Okay. And is there anywhere on social media where people can follow to stay updated with Emanate News or anything like that? Sure, we've got we've got them um, in Facebook. I think for myself, I've been maintaining all of that over the years, so I've been sitting in exile far far away. And um, so you can hit me up on official KG MNA on Twitter, Instagram, and um, and um, and YouTube. So there's some, I'm going to be putting out new new information on there soon, but but that's the best place you can get in touch. All right, people, and also you can catch this episode along with past episodes of Beyond the Album Cover on. Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you get your streaming podcasts, go to anchor.fm slash beyond the album cover, all one word. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, KG from UK R&B pop group, Emanate on Beyond the Album Cover. KG, thank you once again for doing this interview with me. Thank you, Jamal. It's been a pleasure.